This episode is brought to you by Crimped. This is the best app I have seen when it comes to self-coached training for rock climbing. Crimped has dozens of workouts crafted by world-class climbers and coaches that focus on all of the different facets of climbing performance and training, including workouts to guide your outdoor climbing. I just did a really fun collaboration with the guys at Crimped, and now all of you can try my three favorite outdoor bouldering workouts right there in the Crimped app. We've got one called Steven's Outdoor Bouldering Warm-Up, which is my go-to warm-up on a bouldering day. We've got Steven's Outdoor Limit Bouldering, which will guide you through my approach to projecting hard boulders. And finally, we've got Steven's Outdoor Strength Zone Bouldering, which will guide you through a strength-focused bouldering session. I've used that one a lot in Waco tanks over the past few years with great results. And it's a great format for sending some of those second-tier boulders and building strength out there on the rock. Check out the Crimped app at crimped.com. That's C-R-I-M-P-D.com to get started and download the Crimped app for free. And type in Steven, S-T-E-V-E-N, into the search bar in the app to try my go-to outdoor workouts. That's crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the app store. It's totally free to try. Type Steven in the search and have fun out there on the boulders. This episode is brought to you by Wonderful Pistachios. You guys know that I mostly eat whole foods when it comes to my nutrition, and I'm always looking for good crag snacks to bring to the boulders or to the cliff, something with some substance to keep me fueled for hours and hours of climbing. Pistachios are known for their protein power, fiber, and better for you unsaturated fats for a combination that may help keep you feeling fuller longer than other snacks. And they're super convenient and so tasty. Their no-shell flavors include the classic roasted and salted, that's my favorite, super basic, I know. Salt and pepper, honey roasted, chili roasted, and smoky barbecue. They are all so good. You literally can't go wrong. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of sizes, perfect for enjoying by yourself or with family or friends, or taking them with you on your climbing adventures. So whether you're hitting the gym after work or heading out on a weekend adventure, fuel up with a healthy and tasty snack. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more about how these little green wonders can power up your day. Again, that's wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast, where it is my job to extract as many nuggets as I can from my wide range of guests, usually about rock climbing, sometimes about training, and sometimes just about being a human and navigating this crazy world that we are all moving through together. My guest today is Will Anglin. This was such a good conversation. Will is the founder of Tension Climbing. They make hangboards, they make campus rungs, they made the original Tension Board, and now they make the Tension Board 2, which in my opinion is the sickest board on the market. We talked about the tension board too and all of the thought that went into it later in this episode. But yes, Will Anglin, he is an incredible rock climber. He just climbed his hardest boulder very recently by repeating Multiverse that was put up by Jimmy Webb several years ago, either V14 or V15, depending on who you ask. Definitely Will's hardest climb, which is so cool. He's still just getting better and better. And I was excited to talk to Will because I love the way this guy thinks. 
He has written about climbing training. He has talked a lot about climbing training on podcasts. He has a training company and put a lot of that thoughtfulness into the products that he and his team have created and it shows and you're not going to get a lot of straight answers from this guy. This guy is very hesitant to tell you how many reps or sets to do or how many seconds to hang on the hangboard, but he is very good at understanding and thinking about principles and that's what I was really excited to get into in this conversation. So that is what we dug into in this episode. We covered many, many topics. We went on many, many tangents, and there were tons of nuggets in this one. I think you guys will really enjoy it. And with that, let's dive in. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Will Anglin. Are these batteries? Yeah, those are battery packs. Okay. Nice. Yeah, I got them. I got that whole setup for uh, GoPros, like those tripods and those battery packs are for GoPros. And then the GoPros um, were a pain in the ass because they have really small sensors. So indoors, they actually look like shit. Like they're just, uh, everything's really grainy. They're like okay. definitely made for it outside. Like a ton of light. Yeah, sunlight. Okay. But it worked out great. I just got those little adapters that I screwed into the bottom of the cameras and now I've got the Sony, they're like vlogging cameras or something and they're yeah, super that's, compact. And that's they're, awesome. They're kicking ass. It's great. Cool. Um, tell me what you had for breakfast this morning. Eggs. Just eggs? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Eggs and espresso. Eggs and espresso. Five eggs. Just five eggs. Just five eggs. Great. Two yolks. And the rest, just the whites. Oh, okay. I like a... That's kind of old school. I like a a certain ratio. <laughs> a three to two or a five to two, I suppose. Yeah. <clears throat> are you doing any sort of like specific dietary approach? Is that, are you doing like keto or is that just a No, no, breakfast? I just, uh, I love eggs. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're simple. Enough. They got almost everything you need in them. Uh and yeah, I mean, that's like my, my main breakfast is just a mess of eggs nice in some form or another. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. yeah. I'm kind of similar. I, I like kind of transition to a protein heavy breakfast and I'll do eggs or like steak and eggs a lot of the time. And Ooh, steak and eggs is awesome. I feel great when I do that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I don't get too weird about my diet, but I like... I actually, the only thing I really do even keep somewhat of an eye on is my protein intake. And if I'm, uh, if I'm getting enough, you know, and I don't, but I also don't sweat it too hard mm -hmm. like either direction. Yeah. Um, but I do notice <clears throat> if I am able to keep my protein intake like pretty high, I just feel better. Mm-hmm training and uh overall so mostly just kind of focus on that yeah that comes up on the show all the time and i feel like i mean from nutritionists from dietitians my own personal experience if you focus on that one thing if you had to pick one thing to focus on if you think about protein at all like so many other ducks fall into line you know is that a saying? yeah 
Yeah. Uh, sure. Get your ducks in a row. Like one. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just, (laughs) you eat like higher quality food, you know, generally if you're like cranking down whey shakes from like Costco or something, maybe it's not the best, but if you think about it, then you're probably getting like more nutrient density and more whole foods and you're not eating a lot of. Well, and it fills you up too, you know? So, um, yeah, I think that's, that that's at least been true for me. Like if I, if I focus on that, I don't have to worry about a ton of other things. Totally. Um, and I don't know, I've, I've gone through periods where I've been like a lot more particular about what I eat. And, uh, at least for me, it's been more trouble than it's worth, you mm-hmm. know, like a lot of input for basically the same feeling. Yeah. When I just make sure to eat enough protein. That's great. Uh, So I've kind of just settled on that. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Food should be simple, I think. And it's, I mean, it's hard in our food environment for sure. Like you have to be thoughtful, but, um, but yeah, I've definitely overcomplicated it too. And I feel like I'm getting the same or better results from like 10% as much thought or mental energy. Yeah. I used to think about food all the time. But that's neither here nor there. That's a whole rabbit yeah. hole that I've talked about a lot before. For sure. Well, and, and you only have so much energy to put towards stuff in general. Yeah. And so finding the places where that pays off for you and understanding where it doesn't also and just kind of being okay with that. Sorry about this, all the sounds. What? That's okay, but what is it? I'm just so curious. Uh, what is that? Is the cat litter? Oh wow! Yeah. It's like a giant ham, like automatic hamster wheel. Yeah, it, like, it spins. It kind of sucks, actually. The conceptually, it's really cool, but whoever put it together, uh, it there, it always has errors. Huh. Um. But with, it's with like a futuristic space capsule for cat poop. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. With two with two cats in uh in this amount of square footage, it needs to cycle every time they take a shit. Because mm. otherwise it's not cool. Like it just smells. <laughs> it just smells. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like nine hundred square feet in here and your, your cats are living a good life. They've got a lot of little... Oh, they're spoiled. Luxuries. Yeah, they're psyched. <laughs> they're definitely psyched. Amazing. Well, it is great to have you on, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you about a number of things. I finally got a tour of the Tension Center the other day. And I've been... Well, I should back up. I've been following you and your climbing for a long time. And I've always found you to be a really thoughtful and clear thinker. It's always been really helpful for me to read your blogs and just kind of stay a little bit tapped into what Will's thinking, how he's thinking <laughs> about things. Like it helped me, yeah, it, it, it helped me on my own journey to kind of um, understand how to think about training for climbing. I wanted really specific answers for a long time. And I think you're one of the people, Steve Bechtel's another one who helped me move away from that and move towards principles. And that's one of the big things I want to talk to you about today you know, we talked about what we should cover and you, we were hanging out at the tension center for a few hours and I was kind of picking your brain and taking notes, mental notes. And 
you didn't want to talk about training. And I think we should talk about why you didn't want to talk about <laughs> training because I totally vibe yeah. with it. I understand. And something I'm becoming increasingly uh, cautious about is feeling like I'm adding to the noise because, you know, you put a ton of stuff out there. You put like a bunch of different protocols out there from different guests. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> and... um the cat anyway. Um, and then people don't know what to do, you know, and, and they feel more confused than before you got started, which is not helpful, obviously. So I think that'll be a cornerstone of our conversation today. I was so impressed with what you've built at the tension center. You're like the mad Thanks. scientist behind all that. And <laughs> I, I recognize like I have an engineering background and, um, of course, you know, I haven't been on this journey with you, but I can like see that there's so much thoughtfulness and, problem solving and innovation behind a lot of it. And it's just like really well executed and it's really cool. Thanks. To see no, I really problem. appreciate that. Yeah. So yeah, those, those two things I think will be kind of the bulk of the conversation. Like I've got a bunch of questions about how tensions evolved, but I want to start with this. So we, we'd probably been hanging out already. You gave me the tour and then we were sessioning on the tension board too. And uh, you were like, Oh yeah, we like work together. Like I helped you with the program years ago. <laughs> it kind of like my brain just froze. And like, you know, when you click on something on your computer and it overloads the system and there's that like, little spinny <laughs> yeah. beach ball, yeah. you know? Like Buffering. I was like, how could I have forgotten that? What is he talking about? So anyway, yesterday I was putting my notes together for this and I went back and I found our email. Nice. I was like, he was right. Okay. <laughs> so we didn't do a whole program together, but I'm going to read this email from November oh, no. 2015. <laughs> no, it's great. You were super okay, helpful. Okay, okay, okay. It's really simple, but I was like, <laughs> I did send him an email and he gave me a thoughtful answer. And then for some reason I never uh, said thank you. Um, but yeah, so this was from 2015. This is like younger Steven just trying to figure shit out. I wrote, hey, Will, question for you regarding your hangboard phase. When you are in this phase, how much climbing are you doing? How does your climbing training change as you move through hypertrophy, strength, strength endurance on the hangboard? Just figured with the with a five set hangboard strength workout, you must be doing something else. And then I was doing the Anderson Brothers protocol. I kind of laid out what I was doing with only some resistance training and basically only skill oriented warm up climbing. Um, it's been working, but it's slow progress, and I'm interested in trying a more strength focused hangboard protocol. Thanks for your time. And then you replied, you said, hi, Steve, I climb a lot in addition to hangboarding, regardless of the phase I'm in. How I structure the climbing changes with the phase, but I generally climb 10 to 30 minutes before hangboarding and one to two hours afterwards. After I finish climbing, I spend about 30 minutes to one hour resistance training, or I skip it depending on the day. All that being said, it's important to make sure you don't make immediate or drastic changes, changes to your training volume and intensity if you decide to adjust what you're doing make a plan to ramp up to your changes over a few weeks, your body will be much happier with you. Will. That wasn't too bad. That was great. That was a great <laughs> answer. So it, you, that was a time I was kind of thinking back on this and I was like, wow, that was really the start of like a, or like the midst of a huge paradigm shift for me. But yeah, I had been doing like the Anderson brothers thing. I had this very like black and white binary thinking about training. Like I was either training all in doing nothing but hangboarding for like months at a time doing these like two hour repeater workouts were like 
I'd have to rest fully for two days to be able to do it again, you know? Mm -hmm. um, or I was out at Smith Rock trying to send and there was like nothing in between. And I, I think Steve Bechtel and you were the two people that helped me realize like there's another way. I can like titrate this in a little bit, have way more balance. I can keep working on the skills of climbing like all the time and slowly be getting stronger because the Anderson thing, it's a great program, but I found that it would like, I would just push the gas pedal to the floor and like crank on trying to get finger strength. And I would, it would work, but it wasn't persistent. I would sacrifice a ton to get like a little bit stronger. Yeah. And then I would go send a project and then I would, you know, climb at Smith for the season. And then I'd be right back to baseline the next training phase. And I was like, this is really frustrating. I'm just kind of riding this like, you know, yeah. this roller coaster up and down and all around. So yeah. Thank, so thank you. <laughs> thank you. I mean, it really was like the start of a lot of exploration and, and different thinking. And it turned out to be like a big paradigm shift for me. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey friends, this is Steven chiming in after the fact. I realized I should have added more context around this. For those of you who don't know who the Anderson brothers are, the program that I'm referring to here is from a book called The Rock Climbers Training Manual that was written by Mike and Mark Anderson, two brothers who are engineers based in Colorado. They're both very, very good climbers, much better than me, so this program definitely works. But yeah, this is a program that I tried for several years when I was climbing a lot at Smith Rock, and I ended up moving away from this style of training for a lot of the reasons that we're talking about here. So just want to share that context. I will link to the book in the show notes for those of you who want to check it out. And now we'll jump back into the interview with Will. Yeah, that's that cycle. I mean, that's something that I've, I've ridden that over and over again. Um, and like the get strong and then like lose it. And just yeah, just, I, I think what, what I used to do a lot in my train and, and as kind of a, a little bit of a background, um, I've always been like a pretty weak dude, generally speaking. And relative to my climbing level, I still maintain that I'm, I'm definitely like a weak guy. Uh, and looking around at my peers, especially from a young age, like I started climbing on a, a youth team in 2001 and strength, like being really physically strong was always something that I wanted. And, and just, I mean, even just purely cause I didn't have it, mm -hmm. you know, and I like saw other people who are really physically strong. I was like, I want that, like that looks cool. It looks fun. They're climbing harder than me. Like I want to be, I want to do a one arm or, or like hang that edge or, or bench a bunch or like whatever it is. Was this pro climbers, like climbers whose names no, we just, would all just recognize? No, just people. Just people. Just yeah. people. Mm -hmm. Like people who are better than me. Mm -hmm. um, and just being kind of, I don't know. I Being strong, I guess, has always been something that has like attracted me. And so when I... I would get into these cycles when I really started kind of taking training a lot more serious, which probably happened like late high school. <laughs> there's a lot of automated. There's a lot toys. of, there's a lot of 
automated <clears throat> noise and now I'm I'm realizing it as a, you only realize it like when it's consequential. <laughs> when you press yeah. record and it's quiet. Yeah. It's okay. okay. So that won't that, that won't cat, happen again. That's the cat food. That okay. won't happen again. Great. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I think it was probably like late late high school um early college which would have been around 2007 something like that that you first um, got interested in training or or really just took it more seriously and really saw it as a tool that I could use to really significantly improve my climbing. What was your climbing looking like before that or leading I mean, up to that? So before that, I I mean before that, that's like 2001 to 2007. I don't think anyone was really do it like there wasn't I mean there wasn't Instagram mm -hmm. really uh, or at all. Um and I think the only yeah, iPhones. Pretty much the a, only training. Smartphones weren't a thing. Yeah, yet. totally. I had yeah. like a flip phone. Yeah. Um, and really the only significant training literature that I was exposed to at that point was like Eric Hurst stuff, like how to climb 512 or training for climbing. And, um, you know, they, I mean, and there's still good stuff in those books, right? But I think it's it's all come quite a long way from there. And, and even in reading those books, like I was 13, like I wasn't, I wasn't paying the same kind of attention and I was on a youth team. So like I had coaches and we would, we would train, we would have practices, but like, even that wasn't, I mean, it just a completely foreign would look so foreign today. Like when you look at youth programs today and then go back 20 years, like it's different. A, lot, a lot's changed. It's super different. Yeah, so yeah. Um, yeah, like, you know, I, we were doing like, like a bunch of cat, like max calf raises and stuff and just general calisthenics. And then it'd be like, do a bunch of traversing and, but it, it was more of like, we're hanging out in a climbing gym as like a group of people and climbing and, and I learned a ton, um, and uh, still, still like have contact with my coaches are great guys and have been kind of mentors throughout my life in one way or another. And, but the, you know, the, the training is just worlds apart. Right. Um, were you competing? Were you just psyched on outdoor rock climbing? Um, I, I competed for a while. It was, it was pre USA climbing really. Um, I, I mean, it was, there was no USA climbing. It was, uh, there was like jibs and ABS and the USCCA and the JCC. It was like a, there was just like a mess of all these different organizations that were trying to like, you know, I, Do it was just so, so, so new. Yeah. And I remember I actually have like a, uh, I quit for a while. I like quit climbing cause I, I like hated competitions, just mm. got super burned out. Um, but there also wasn't really the competitive structure that there is now. So like, I remember my, my first competition, I think I was 13. It was, there were, there were no age categories except for 13 and under. And I was 13. So like I did that and I, and I won and I just remember the kid who got second place was like some like 11 year old and he was like bawling his eyes out. And I was like, I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, 
like I feel bad because now this kid's crying. I I won, but also like I watched a 20 to 30 other people house everything I didn't do. And then my prize was a book called How to Rock Climb. And so I was like, this, none of this makes any sense to me. <laughs> and so from then on out, I just would enter the open category and get housed. And mm. I was like, I would rather get housed in open than beat children. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think I won like an <laughs> intermediate category in college once. And I was like, this does not feel good. It feels weird. I'm like, it's so it arbitrary. Like what's yeah. the cutoff between winning intermediate and like, I should have, should I have been in advance? Like, yeah. What place would I have gotten? Advanced? Yeah. It was and just then, like, an open. It, it was just like, this yeah, is, it's, I'm so far from the best <laughs> climber here. I'm just the best one who, who could justify signing up for this yeah. middle category. Like that's weird. It's that, super weird. Yeah. And, the, and it has come a long way since then. And, and I think in many ways it's better. And, and in some ways I think it's worse, but, uh, yeah, that was kind of my youth comp experience. Um, and did a couple years of that and was like, this is, it just wasn't fun. Like I wasn't having fun at competitions. I really liked going to practice and I like, I liked climbing and, uh, Were you going out, out with my rock climbing? With? I wasn't really at yeah, that yeah. point. Um, it's hard as a kid to get I out had, there. I had gone like top, there's like, I was living in Maryland at the time and there are some, like there are rocks, but you know, they're not that great. Um, and so I would go like top roping at this place called Woodstock Rock, like by some train tracks or whatever. And so like, I, I like understood what rock climbing was, but it wasn't like, and there were posters, you know, like I, I vividly can like see like Fred Nicole Prana posters and, and like, uh, photos in climbing magazines and, um, being like, holy shit, like that's why well, I want to do that. Um, but also I can't drive. So like, it's going to be a minute probably. <laughs> uh, and like my, my dad would take me out every now and then. I think I got to go to like a triple crown in horse pens when I was maybe 15 or, or something like that. Um, but I think I, I actually don't remember when it was that I like kind of quit. Mm. Um, but it didn't last that long because we went to, uh, um, Summersville Lake to like be on a boat or whatever. And we knew there was rock climbing and I was like, I I've quit. Like, I don't, I don't care. My dad was like, just throw your shoes in. Like, you know, like there's deep water soloing or something. Like maybe you'll want to do that. I'm like, I don't know, whatever. And so I threw the, threw the shoes in and we were out on the boat and, and, uh, I mean, if you've seen photos or been to Summersville or the new, um, it's still, that's still like my all time favorite place to go climbing. But mm. we were just kind of cruising around in the boat and I was just like looking at those freaking cliffs, man. <laughs> I was like, like, ah, can you like can you pull over? Like, I wanna, I don't just mess around. And I put my shoes on and just, just started cruising, like not like climbing anything in particular and just, uh, it like immediately I was like, oh, this is, mm. this is exactly what I want to be doing. Cool. Um, and it's, it's been kind of nonstop. How old were then. you at the time? I think that was around 15, 
give or take a year. I've got like a horrible memory <laughs> for, for that kind of thing. But yeah. um yeah, like teenager yeah. kind of thing. And I think of you as a boulderer. Do you think of yourself that way? Did you like have you done all sorts of different uh, things and did you eventually gravitate towards that or I don't even really like to think of myself as a climber, which is like oh kind of a dumb distinction. But like I'm a dude who climbs. Yeah. Like I'm just like a person. Yeah, yeah. Uh but I do almost exclusively boulder now, but I um I mean like I like I said, I started in a gym. Um and then uh, when I started climbing outside, it was mostly sport and actually mostly trad. Um, so when I was like my late teens, um, my, my girlfriend at the time was really into trad climbing. And so I learned a ton from her and climbed a lot at Seneca Rocks and trad climbing at the new. And at that point was probably splitting my time somewhat evenly between sport and trad. And then when I went to college, I, I went to college like four hours west of here in Gunnison. Mm. Um, and specifically because it was like an hour from the Black Canyon. Oh, cool. And when I went to the, the college visit, like we didn't spend a lot of time visiting the college, but we uh, definitely went to the black and like just stood on the rim there and looked down and was like, that's the most badass thing like I've ever seen. That's such an like, impressive. I've only I'm, visited it. And, like, I'm trying to the, climb here. <laughs> the tourist thing of just like yeah. looking down, but it's so impressive. It's yeah. brutal, man. And and just the, it, that, it's yeah. super unique too. Like it being a canyon and not like a cliff. Yeah. Um, Starting on top, like, going down feeling really committed and probably. yeah like you can't it yeah the the commitment level is is just a totally different thing there are places where like parts of the canyon where you could like if you went down there and started climbing and got yourself into trouble you could theoretically get back to the ground and hike out but um, more often than not like once you start climbing and certainly like you do one traverse pitch, only way out's up. Damn. And it's a lot further up than it is down. Like here. <laughs> uh and and that was that was cool. So I I I climbed a lot there in college and uh and you know did like the Indian Creek thing and the desert towers and um I didn't know any of this about you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of did it backwards in a lot of ways. Or I, I intend it to be a circle eventually. Mm. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't until pretty, pretty late in college or, or I should say I, I started bouldering more outside when I was in college because there was a lot of undeveloped bouldering around Gunnison and um, it was just a fun thing to do. Like I really just like exploring and running around outside. And so we would, kind of in the process of doing other things, stumble across these boulders and like, well, I want to climb that. <laughs> and, and I used to drive around like in my, I had a truck in college and I would like have my kit in the back. I'd like have my pads. I'd have all my trad gear in a haul bag, bunch of sport draws, a couple of different ropes for different things. And like what I 
for me in college, like what I wanted is I wanted to just be able to drive around. And if I saw something and I wanted to climb it, I could do it mm. regardless of the style or, or anything about it. If it was on the other side of the river, no big deal. I've got my Tyrolean rig in the truck. Like we'll just <laughs> go across. Uh, just, I wanted to be able to do anything, like That's anything cool. that I looked at and was like sick. I just wanted to be able to do yeah, uh, and, and like have the skills to do. So I spent a lot of time developing that part of my climbing and then um, just started to fall kind of more in love with bouldering specifically um, and never really went back and like kind of had that sport climbing heavy experience. Um, I like bolted some things and did definitely do sport climbing and um, and I do enjoy it, but bouldering was kind of what really started to keep me excited. And and being in Colorado, I think that made a lot of sense for yeah. me. Because um, in, in the, on the East Coast, like the New River Gorge, like I said, like I, I pretty much learned to rock climb there and the sport climbing there, man, and the track climbing and the bouldering, actually, I think like move for move, pitch for pitch, for pitch I think it's the best area in the country. Mm. Um, but there's really nothing like that in Colorado. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> like, have you done much sport climbing out here? Um, I've climbed in rifle a fair bit. And other than that, I've just kind of dabbled. I've like climbed at Wizard's Gate a bit and the monastery a tiny bit and just kind of checked out a lot of different spots. <clears throat> and there are good routes scattered here and there, but you're totally right. Like I feel the same way. I mean, that's really um, a big part of why I've gravitated back towards bouldering because I was basically a sport climber exclusively for seven years, aside from like training in the gym. Yeah. Um, and I've come back to it because, yeah, like traveling around, there's just so much good bouldering everywhere. And then there are good pockets of sport climbing, but it's, yeah, it's, um, I think on the average, we have better bouldering in the States than sport climbing. And yeah, there's all sorts of other things like the sport climbing takes a, it's a bigger investment and it doesn't work as well with the podcast and the scheduling and things like that. But, um, but yeah, especially in the front range around here, there's, there are boulders everywhere, everywhere, hard boulders everywhere. Yeah. And the sport climbing's a little lackluster. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, there's, there are really sick routes mm -hmm. in Colorado, but they're usually pretty spread out or it's like a singular line. And, and that is actually really cool. You know, like there, there's a, there's something that's cool about that. That's different than what's cool about something like the new, but, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, it's much easier, I think, on the East Coast to, or, or at least, I, I haven't climbed much in Rumney, but Rumney looks like this, definitely the red, definitely the new. Um, and there's other places in the Southeast where like, you can just go climbing mm -hmm. and everything is good. Mm -hmm. And a few things are like super world-class and just amazing. Um, and when I, I moved out here, uh, I was like, that just, didn't really exist. There were big trad routes, which like I, I focused kind of more on that initially. And then, um, I mean, with kind of the accessibility and of Google earth and me just being somebody who likes to go check stuff out, um, that became really fun. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was 
more opportunity to do that than to go kind of explore and look for sport climbing cliffs. It's much harder to find that. And mm. I, I, this would be a huge tangent, uh, but like when you just think about like a good climb, it has to have like good moves on it, right? And it's often a lot easier to find 10 good moves on a boulder than 65 moves in a row totally. on a cliff somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time looking for sport cliffs and looking for climbs and I found some, but more often than not, like you find something and you're like, there's, I'm, we're missing moves <laughs> like this. It, it almost goes and then it doesn't. Mm. And, um, that, that made me understand why people chip sport climbing. Mm. And, uh, I chipped a sport climb once and I fucking hated it. Mm. Uh, and I was like, I, I was like that, that was it. Like I did it. I crossed the line. Fuck that. I don't like this anymore. Hmm. Wow. And, uh, was, you know, like, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go down this path. No, yeah. like if I can't, if I can't find the thing, then, then I guess I just didn't find it. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, that, that was a pivotal that's really experience. Yeah. That's for that, sure. That's really interesting. And I, I think a lot of people, um, some people totally get this, but a lot of people don't. I think people that don't spend a lot of time sport climbing in different areas don't necessarily realize that that it's almost a necessity. You know, like with sport climbing, it's so rare that you get 65 amazing moves in a row or even like doable, decent moves in mm -hmm. a row. You know, and especially here in the States where like a lot of our limestone is like questionable quality, it needs a lot of preparation. And that can vary from you know, you can call it cleaning, you can call it reinforcing, it's craftsmanship. It's like, mm -hmm. it takes a lot of work and there's a big gray area and a lot of the best routes are not completely natural. It's really rare sure. that you have a really good yeah. route that's completely natural. Yeah. And bouldering, yeah, I don't know why, I guess it's just the scale of it. It's, it's way easier to find really high consistent quality. Like that's something I started noticing. I still love sport climbing and I'm going to go back to it, but a lot of my favorite sport climbs that I have been trying over the last few years, some of them are like excellent bottom to top, you know, but usually those have like had some work done to them, which doesn't necessarily bother me. It is what it is. I think, you know, there's like a craft there and it's, I appreciate it. But um, more often than not, it's like, cool, there's 10 feet of this 100 foot climb that I love, mm -hmm. but it's still <laughs> not quite as good as like most of these other boulders over here. So yeah. maybe I'll just go do the 10 feet of climbing over there <laughs> yeah, and have a lot higher like density of, of high quality. Um, yeah, it, it's different. It's a very different experience. And I still love like the, the flow and like the, the kind of longer like climbing experience of trying to send a sport route with it's like mm -hmm. turning it on and off and like trying hard and then relaxing. And like, I think that's really cool, but just as far as objective, like movement quality. Yeah. It, it tends to be lower than it's, it's bouldering. To, yeah. And I think you're right about it as like a point of scale, like just the odds are it's going to be easier to find less 
moves in a row. Um, and yeah, the, the, the kind of chipping manufacturing, sort of the gray area of cleaning, um, that's a tough one. Um, cause you have to do some of it just to make the roots safe a lot of the time. Yeah. And it's, yeah. yeah anyway. And then, and it's, it, I don't know. It, it's, I'm pretty removed from sport climbing at this point and removed from the development of it. It's been a really long time. It's like a decade since I've, I've done anything like that, but I've continued to, to develop bouldering. And, um, that's something that, at least for me, like that's not a line that I'm willing to cross anymore. Um, like if it doesn't go, it doesn't go. Like I'd rather just move on. And for me, that's something that it makes it even more special to find the things that are good and do go. Mm -hmm. um, and and I wish that a lot less <laughs> manufacturing happened in the development of bouldering in Colorado. Uh, it's mm. still happening um, a lot and. And I think a lot of the times it gets justified under, well, like, you know, it wasn't going to go anyway. Would you rather like have a boulder problem here or not? Mm. And, um, or, you know, there's, we need more boulder problems because there's just climbing, climbing is exploding and the number of people going outside has increased drastically, especially over the last three years. And I think there's, like on one hand, I'm, I I want to see more people out there developing bouldering because it's really hard work, um, and you know maybe we do need more of it. Uh, and I just uh, I don't like the the level of manufacturing mm -hmm. that's that's going on. Like it's not it's not that important. And, and just, and this is like the ends don't justify the means. They don't justify the means. And, and also like the boulder probably goes just maybe not for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I think it's, it's a shame. Um, it's a shame. There are, there are, <laughs> there are areas out here that are like, I'm like, oh, wow. Like another 10 V10s and V11s went up. Like we, those could have been harder probably. Mm -hmm. um, this is interesting. <laughs> I mean, this is, this. you're way more like tapped into this world than I am. This is like kind of new to me, you know? Like I know it happens sometimes, but I mm -hmm. don't think I realize that this is like a problem, that this is like happening a lot. It's a problem. Yeah. And it does happen a lot. And yeah. it's, and, and it's, it's a tough thing to talk about in some ways, because in some ways there is like a gray area and, and it's, it, and it's not even the gray areas that really trouble me that much. It's the, like the stuff that I feel like lands pretty squarely over the line, which is like, you know, you're, you're trying a thing and, and you can't do it or doesn't, un, you don't understand how it goes. And you're like, well, if, if this was like this, then, then it would be X, Y, or Z or whatever. And then you'd like make it like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that just, that to me is like, well, don't, 
do that. <laughs> like when you have that thought, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like it just, maybe it's, maybe it's a hard boulder. Maybe it's a one move wonder. Maybe it's not even that hard and you just haven't spent enough time looking at it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's been things that I've found and, and been like, I, I think this is impossible, but I'll, I'll, I like to come back to those things. And there, there's, at least for for the sake of having an anecdote, there's there's a boulder in Gunnison, um, actually a bunch <laughs> in Gunnison where when I first looked at them, I was like, this doesn't go. And then a year later I'd come back and or or be thinking like, I wonder, maybe that thing does go. Like you kind of forget that yeah. you thought it was impossible and you go back. You were certain and you're like, was I was I certain? Like I feel less certain now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. then you go back and then you and then you don't do it again. You're like, oh, it's impossible. And then a year later you come back. And there's stuff that I've like had that sort of back and forth relationship with for three to five years. And then you come back one day and all of a sudden you're like, oh shit. <laughs> like that's the thing that I was missing. There's mm. like like that could be a hold or if you like stand on this thing this way or maybe it goes another direction or something. Um, but those, you know, that's like a lot of time investment. That's a long time to sort of suspend your disbelief. Mm. And and I get that, but I think that at least for me, those have been really, really rewarding experiences that have helped me kind of define my progression in climbing and you know there there's a lot of things to say about it but i guess the it, it's tough to see that kind of thing you know eliminated or robbed mm -hmm. you know like just come back to it like maybe you don't get it today maybe you won't get it next year maybe you won't understand for a couple of years maybe someone else will do it first maybe someone else will come in and like look at it and that's another experience i've had a ton of times where you like feel like you understand what's happening and then someone else comes in and climbs on it and you're like, oh shit, how did I miss that? Mm -hmm. Like I was doing it wrong. Um, and there've been times where I've been really uh, protective of projects and done them and then had somebody come and do it and been like, God damn it. Like I should have just climbed on it with somebody, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so definitely, um, you know, don't feel that way about projecting or first ascents anymore. Um, but yeah, it's when you when you chip something like you're you're changing it forever. You know, like all these other things can change. You know, but like as soon as you chip that thing, like you know, that's a, that's a forever, yeah. well, you know, pretty forever decision. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that affects a lot of other people. Um, and yeah, I just wish people wouldn't do it. Mm. <laughs> right on. <laughs> so we started down this path of having too much noise with training and like my big paradigm shift and like trying to make sense of the noise and stuff. Yeah. And you had started and all of that was Sorry, great. That was a crazy tangent. No, that was awesome. <laughs> like it's, it's awesome to hear more about your, uh, yeah. your background and your early climbing and your kind of climbing history. And I, I, yeah, I think like chipping is very important and great thing to talk about. So that was all great. Um, but yeah, I want to bring us back. So you had started to say that you got disillusioned with comp climbing 
and eventually you kind of like took training more seriously and you had, it sounds like you had a yeah. similar kind of trajectory as me where you, in your own way, you like went all in and then kind of had that, you know, on off thing or something, but mm-hmm. let, let's pick it up there. Cause I want to, I want to kind of make our way or whatever makes sense, but I want to make our way towards how you feel about it now. I don't mean to project onto you, but something I've experienced is like for the longest time, I was obsessed with this question of like, what is the best thing to do? Mm -hmm. What should I actually do? There's gotta be like a best protocol or approach, right? Yeah. And I was obsessed with finding it. And I tried a bunch of things. I tried a ton of things and I could tell some of these like work really well for other people, but they're just not quite fitting my life or my body or whatever. And I was hung up, I was still hung up on that question. Like, okay, I just cross this one off. What's next, (laughs) you know? And then I finally kind of opened up and realized like, okay, I've been kind of focused on the wrong question here. And it's um, more of a matter of like, let's just stick to some more basic principles. Like let's just climb on a board more often. Let's just do some type of finger training more consistently, because for me, that is something that still holds back my climbing. And then finally, I just kind of got so far away. So I, I, I saw doing the podcast, I've seen so many examples of really strong people doing completely different things. Some of them are very specific and have their thing, their protocol, their like training that they have done, rinse, repeat for, you know, years and years, maybe decades and it works for them. Other people just, it's not that complicated. They just climb a lot and they climb on a board maybe, or maybe not even. And they just have gotten insanely strong. I just became so uncertain that now I just like, don't even really know what to say to people who have questions about all this stuff. It seems like you're, you're a little bit similar. Like you've kind of gotten to this point where you're like, I don't want to tell anybody what to do because like, I don't fucking know. Like there's, there's all these examples of people who explode that like certainty that I had at one point or that confidence in like this way of hangboarding or whatever. Totally. No. And that's, I think much like all sorts of other things in life, there's really not a super right answer. And I think I've, you know, I've, I've, I've been climbing for what to me feels like a long time now. And there've been points in time where I've been really convinced about a certain intervention. Like everybody should be doing this. Like, why aren't they? This is clearly what's up. And as time has gone on, I've, I feel like I've, I still have that same feeling of like, am I taking crazy pills? Like, why aren't people X, Y, or Z? But it's not like a protocol. It's, it's turned more into like, why aren't people thinking about it this way? And I want to dig into some of those things. Yeah. Not, we can you finish your okay. thought, but, um, but eventually I want to hear what those are. Totally. Yeah. Um, there's, I think we're, it's easy to get it mixed up is like in theory there, there's a best way, but practically speaking, that's not that helpful of a concept, I don't think. Um, Why is that? It's, oh man. Like it just depends on too many variables? It, I, I think that's, I think that's it. I think that's kind of the simplest way to put it is, is 
it exists, but it exists in different ways for every individual in some way. That's, but I want to balance that thought out with another one that is like, we're both just fucking skeletons, you know? We have effectively the same joints, it's muscles and tendons. We're dealing with the same thing, generally speaking. So there's nothing that special about climbing that isn't, isn't a thing in every other like activity, like right. we're all humans. So like we're all not, special snowflakes, but at the same time, like we're all kind of the same and it's not that complicated. We're all the same. It's not that complicated, yeah, but yeah, yeah, like what that looks like for you is going to be different, but it's going to be different in these more subtle ways that in practice probably don't matter. Mm. Like, cause when you get to those little, like small percentages or kind of fractional improvements, it can be thrown off by so many other things that like, I don't think it, to, to your point about like, if I just focus on getting the protein that I need, everything else more or less falls into place. And, and then I'm, instead of spending 80% of my energy dialing all of this in exactly, I can spend 10 or 20% and effectively get to basically the same place. And then right. I have all this energy to focus elsewhere. Right. And yeah. It's not, yeah, exactly. We're not like, we're not like telling ourselves that it's perfect, but the point is not to be perfect. The, the point is to like get good results or any results, effective results from, you know, a reasonable amount of investment. Yeah. Or maybe the minimal amount of investment, depending on what it yeah. is. Yeah, and and finding what that is depends a lot on like who you are, what your life looks like, and what you have access to. And it changes. It does. That's, that's the thing that I've like <laughs> real. That's really like blown my head apart. You know, is like, oh, I finally found something that worked really well. I've arrived. Like I like discovered it. You know, amazing. I can just like. I found the thing, I can just keep doing it forever and I'll keep getting benefits from it. But then that's not how it works. Like my lifestyle changed, started living in the van, started doing the podcast, you know, got interested in different types of climbing that have totally different physiological demands. Like that balance of shit doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. same, I have to like kind of go back to the drawing board and, and make a bunch of tweaks and like rediscover. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's... Um, you see this a lot in climbing where folks will look at like the pros and be like, well, what are they doing? You know? Uh, and, and people will, uh, I'll be working with somebody and they'll be like, well, this person does X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, so <laughs> like, who, who do you think you are? You think you're them? Like that, that person has been climbing for 20 years, they're a professional climber. They fly around the world for whatever's in season. Every day they want to go out and try a hard project, they can. They're they're trying all sorts of different things all at once. Like, do you like what about them and the way that they go about climbing looks like you? Mm -hmm. You know, like basically none of it. So to look at somebody like that and be like, well, I'm going to do what they're doing, but I have a full-time job, go climbing on the weekends and spend most of my time in a gym. Th like 
that's just seems like a pretty flawed way to look at it. And there's also this, this like, you do still have to like learn how to climb. You know, I was, I was having a conversation with a, um, a friend of mine, Matt Jones, who's a, a really great coach and trainer and he works with climbers, but he also works with other uh, endurance athletes and, and things like that. Um, and so he has a really cool perspective and he's just one of my favorite people to talk about training and climbing with. And we started going off about, um, about this exactly. And we're, we're making, uh, parallels to, to baseball. Um, and I don't particularly like baseball <laughs> for the record, but, uh, like you don't just like when you're young and you start to play baseball, like you start with T-ball, right? Like, and then the coach will pitch it to you real nice. And then eventually like a kid starts throwing it at you shittily, you get hit a couple of times. Uh, and then eventually the kid throwing the ball gets better at throwing the ball. And one thing leads to another and there's professional baseball, right? Yeah. The field gets bigger. Yeah. But you don't know, no one is looking at professional baseball and then taking a group of seven-year-olds and being like, all right, here we go. You know, like you've got to learn how to throw the ball, how to catch the ball. What are the rules of the game? Like, let's practice beating the shit out of this ball, sitting on a stick. So like we understand how to swing the bat and all this stuff. And then, and you like progress over time and you learn how to play the game and certain parts of it become more or less important. And like pro baseball players aren't necessarily hitting a ball off a tee anymore, but they do batting practice, right? That's another, that's kind of like crazy to me. Like you look at climbers and, and you talk to somebody who's like, all right, I've been climbing for three months. Like I'm ready to train. What's Adam Andre doing? Like, I, like, oh, he's like always climbing on a spray wall and like blah, blah, blah. And like, that's a huge miss. Like you're missing decades of what got somebody like that to where they're at. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no, there's nothing wrong with like, being wherever you're at. And I think if you, you kind of have a decision there, like either engage with where you're at and learn how to climb or keep like missing the boat and looking way too far ahead and end up in this cycle of like kind of disappointment and injury, like that just seems to happen to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, it's, it's odd in climbing that, and I don't have a, I don't have a huge connection to like other sports. So I don't really know if this is a phenomenon that like happens in soccer or, or something, but it certainly seems to happen a lot in climbing. Like people are just getting really ahead of themselves. And I don't know exactly where that comes from, but like you mentioned hangboarding, right? And I think hangboarding is amazing. In fact, like make, I actually make hangboards, you know, like if I thought they were stupid, I wouldn't make them. Um, but like what the hangboard does and what kind of a role it plays in what a climber is doing, like should change from day one to year 20, mm. right? Like it, is still an effective tool no matter what, 
But the way somebody who has just started climbing in the last five years uses a hangboard versus somebody who's been climbing for 10 or 20 years, like it's, it's, it seems ne- like pretty obvious that the use of that tool should change, right? Mm-hmm. And so for somebody in the early stages of that, looking at somebody in the late stages of that for information about what to do, like you're, you're just missing out. Mm-hmm. That's great. <laughs> I, I love that. I love the baseball analogy. I, this is kind of like a half form thought. I haven't really like flushed this out, but um, I want to play off your baseball analogy. Cause one thing that popped into my head um, that I think, it, you know, is another mistake. Actually, I'll, I'll just say it out loud. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it, but like the batting practice analogy, right? Mm-hmm. Even once you get to a professional level and you're one of the best baseball players in the world, you're not practicing hitting a hundred mile an hour fastballs and curveballs and stuff all the time. You're like batting practice is like a way toned down version of mm-hmm. being in a game, and you're hitting like really perfectly thrown, comfortably thrown, eighty mile an hour, seventy five mile, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and you're working on like mechanics and hitting it perfectly and trying to like not just hit the shit out of it, but like hit it to left field in a place where the outfielder is not going to be or whatever. Whereas climber, you're not like practicing, you're not, you're not training or practicing like you're in a, you know, championship game or something all the time. Mm -hmm. And climbers don't do a great job of that a lot. You know, we just take the most extreme, like highest skilled version of it and just beat our heads against it constantly. Or we go, and I think you're getting at something really important. Like it seems like more often than not, folks go to the full edge of like actually trying to do performance rock climbing, right? Where like that is the sport or they're all the way over on the other side, hangboarding and like bench pressing Mm. and then never connect those two things Mm -hmm. and, and underperform. And we'll go, go back and be like, well, my finger numbers went up, like my numbers on all these exercises went up. I did this assessment and they say that I should be able to climb V whatever, but every time I go outside, I get housed by this thing. Like what the hell is happening? Like, well, you're, you're, you're only investing time and energy at the two very extreme ends of this spectrum. Like, what do you expect to happen? Like, mm. you're not, you're missing this whole chunk of, of like learning how to apply what you're doing on one side to the other. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a thing that I really take issue with kind of in the popular training space now is it's, it's become so metrics focused that like one, I think those are useless and become more useless every year that we get people feeding numbers into it. Um, and, and there are so many people who are so strong now, like it's insane. Yeah. The love- strength level of climbers as a whole, but then yeah, yeah. the, but then they, like, they don't actually, they're not really climbing any harder. Um, and people are training for the tests. Exactly. Yeah. And then they put their numbers back in and then you run the numbers again and then the numbers it's start used, shifting and, the whole thing. and now it's worthless. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I think all of that started with the best intentions and there's definitely value to 
doing that kind of like data collection and analysis. But, you know, we were talking the other day and, and this is a, I think it's a Dan John quote and I, and I kind of heard it through Chris Hampton years ago. Um, but like keep the goal, the goal. And it's, it's just such a dead simple thing, but it, it makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, some people, especially now like climb for fitness or like, it's a fun social thing to do and climbing gyms are awesome. Um, and it is a great thing to do. And people being active is better than them not being active and climbing super fun. And, and if that's like the goal, by all means, if what's fun for you about climbing is trying to push your hangboard numbers as far as you can, hell yeah, that's awesome. But if your goal is to climb harder climbs or get better at climbing and what you're focusing on is pushing those numbers up or something like you've got it mixed up mm -hmm. and you're just, it's just never really going to work that well. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if, if you, the goal is to go to this other end of the spectrum and like climb really well and climb as hard as you possibly can, um, you, you need this whole middle ground of actually learning how to like move your body properly and, and climb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And climbing so variable. So um, that's that's a kick I've been on recently. Um, and I think I've said this in one form of another over a long period of time, but like, like the best climbers are the most adaptable climbers. And, and that's especially apparent in comp climbing. Um, like the strongest climber doesn't win. Totally. And the strongest climber definitely doesn't climb the hardest boulder you know, the, the quote unquote best one does and, and what does best look like in rock climbing. And I think what that looks like is having like maximizing the number of like successful movement opportunities that are open to you. Um, and is strength a part of that? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, mobility is a part of that. Um, like skill is a part of that very multifaceted and I don't want to talk shit on strength training. Like it's super important. Um, and it does open up more possibilities for you, but it's just one part of that equation. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions, my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin. Here's the deal. We're coming into spring and summer here in the Northern Hemisphere. It's starting to warm up. And if you're like me and you're trying to get outside and climb on rock, sweaty hands are once again a factor in your performance. Luckily for us, my pal Justin Brown, the founder of Rhino Skin Solutions, has a solution. Rhino's line of antiperspirant products are a game changer when it comes to climbing in warm or humid conditions, especially if you have sweaty skin like I do. Check out their performance cream, dry spray, and tip juice to keep your hands dry as you tackle your summer projects. And check out my episode with Justin way back in episode 22 of The Nugget to learn how to use these products and how to take great care of your skin for whatever type of climbing you love to do. 
Head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order of Rhino's antiperspirant products. Stock up on performance cream, dry spray, and tip juice, and keep your skin dry and happy in the summer heat. Once again, that's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Let's talk about therapy. Have you tried therapy? It's fucking awesome. I go to therapy twice a month through BetterHelp, and it's super, super helpful. I have a lot of supportive people in my life, but nothing beats sitting down and talking with a professional who is there for no other reason than to listen and to help. It's the best. I would literally pay twice as much for therapy. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge and without any awkwardness. It's super easy. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash nugget today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash nugget. And now back to the show. One of the reasons why you were hesitant to talk about training is because I think you said something along the lines of like, you know, you've done other podcasts and realized that these interviews are like such a snapshot in time. They're like your thoughts in that moment. And I love the way that you just said like something I've been on a, I'm like on a kick lately. You know, I've been on a kick about this lately. It's such a good way of capturing like, I'll probably change my mind or I'll be on yeah. something else in a few <laughs> months, you know, I'll be yeah. all fired up about something else and it changes. Um, but something that I used to do a lot that I see other people doing, and it makes total sense. It's like, you know, you, for example, you grew, you uh, wrote this great article years ago called Hangboarding Away, right? Yeah. And it just laid out like, I don't know what's best, but like, if you don't know what to do and you just want to get started, here's an option. I think that still exists on the Tension blog. Yeah. And it, it's yeah. a great article. Yeah. But people want to know like, well, you said this then. And then you said this more recently mm -hmm. and they seem to be different. Mm -hmm. So what happened? Like, is the old way invalid? Did you change your mind? Is that still relevant? Are we out with the old in with the new, you know? And it, it makes sense to think about it that way, but it's exactly what you've been talking about with the baseball analogy. It's like, no, that was really relevant for like a little leaguer. Yeah. And if you're a little leaguer, that's still great advice. Mm -hmm. But now if you're a semi-pro, here's something different to think about that you might be struggling with or relate to as a semi-pro or whatever. Um, or it could just depend on the person and their lifestyle. So yeah, I think, I think that's interesting, but people are still confused about that. So I wanted to ask you, what are some of the most common confusion points that you see from people and questions that you get about yeah. advice that you've given in the past or articles that you've written and things like that? So there's a handful of things that I think would be good to mention. Um, I mean, one of them gets to kind of the, the email exchange that we had many years ago where folks are like, 
wondering how much to take away from their climbing time to do the strength training. You know, like, well, if you're doing a quote unquote hangboard phase or a quote unquote strength phase or a lifting phase or whatever, like whatever the case may be, it's like, well, are you still climbing? Like, or I often hear people who are like, you know, for the next cycle, like I'm really just going to focus on, on hangboarding and I'm not really going to do much climbing. Like I need to focus on like this other thing. And I used to think that way too. Right. So this isn't like, I'm not trying to totally hate on these people. Like I get where that comes from, but I think that's a miss. Like it, you need to be climbing. Like there's no, and this is the kind of roller coaster that I have ridden a lot in the past where you take a lot of time away from climbing in order to focus on like, I need to get my lifting up. I want to get my hangboard numbers up. Like I feel weak on the wall. So it makes sense to me that if I spend a little less timing, time climbing, spend a little less time climbing and spend more time doing the hangboarding and the strength training, that, that, that seems like the right thing to do. Um, and then you get really strong your numbers go up, everything feels good. And you're like, hell yes, here we fucking go. And then you go rock climbing. You're like, oh no. (laughs) It's like, I've never done this a day in my life. Like what the hell is happening here? Like I'm strong. Like the, the assessment says I should be able to do this thing. And then how come I can't climb it? And then you get like really frustrated and like, damn it. Like, I guess I need to get stronger. And then you like go back in and you're like, all right, now I'm in the weight room again and doing the hangboarding again and not doing the climbing when really like it, and it never seems to line up like your strength level with your skill level. Mm. Um, and I am for sure very familiar with that, uh, that cycle and that kind of roller coaster. And it feeds on itself in, in a weird way and it can be tough to get out of, but like the answer to that is climbing. You just, you need to be climbing. Um, that skill component can never go away or you're just never going to be able to perform. There are some really constrained circumstances in which a solution like that might work, but it's rare. And like the truly purposes, all you have access to is a hangboard or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Or, or like the project you're working on is like basic, just basic. Like, can I, I just need to be able to literally one arm this edge and campus off of it. And that's the only reason I'm not doing this boulder. Mm -hmm. Sure. But even saying that, I'm like, I'm like, fuck, Will, why'd you even say that? Because someone's going to be like, oh, that's why I'm not doing my boulder. And like, I'd be like, no, that is, that's, God damn it. That's also the wrong thing to think. Like, you don't have to be able to one-arm that edge to do that boulder. You could just be better at climbing and then you would do it. Um, so anyway, um, that sort of taking big chunks of time away from climbing in order to focus on this more supplementary work, I think, I think that's really common and a miss. Mm. Um, another thing, uh, and this is a sentiment that I just, uh, it, I think it's really common and, um, I, somebody said something on the internet as they do these days and, and I like, it just caught my eye and I was like, that's silly. Like, <laughs> um, and it was somebody who like climbed a, a boulder of a hard grade and was like, but then I didn't climb a bunch of these other boulders at an easy grade 
climbing grades don't make sense. This is all stupid. What a mess. And while I like, I get that, uh, like, dude, that's like normal. Mm -hmm. Like, what are you even talking about? Mm -hmm. Like, just because you can climb a grade doesn't mean that everything below that you should should be attainable to you. And even like many grades below, Mm -hmm. like that's like that's just climbing in a nutshell. Like, there's so. There are so many factors, there are so many styles, so many variables. Like it's it's super totally normal to be able to perform at a certain level in one way and then not be able to attain that level in some other way. Totally. Like that's actually really great. Cause now you know, like, oh wow, like I'm I'm really good at this style. Let's spend a lot of time like if I can climb this V10, but I can't do these V6s, that's super informative. Like what you should be doing is like, let's spend more time on whatever it is about these sixes or these sevens or whatever it is that seems to make them particularly hard for you. Like focus on that. Like that's what's going to make you better, not hangboarding or, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's like really common. People start climbing and they get really discouraged by that. Um, but I would, I would encourage folks who have that experience to take that as like a really positive thing and, uh, a way of kind of climbing, telling you where, you know, where your time should be spent. Like that's awesome. Yeah. That's your guiding light. Like that's a little perspective shift. And all of a sudden that's like, Ooh, I'm excited that this V6 kicked my ass because there's a huge clue here. Mm-hmm. And if I, you know, really think about this and take it to heart and work on this thing that makes this boulder hard for me, then I'll be a better climber and it's going to apply to probably lots of other stuff too. Yeah. yeah. That was a big turning point for me. I, I remember my early climbing in Leavenworth. Um, I got really good at like, you know, physical burly feature climbing and I was good at finding tricks heel hooks, you know, things like that. I was really into micro beta, still am. I'm just wired that way. And I was annoyed when people would just thug their way up stuff, you know? And I, I, because I wanted to climb beautifully, like that felt important to me to climb things well, but I took it way too far. I like got to a point where like, if a, if an outdoor rock climb felt basic or like bro-y, I just wouldn't do it, Mm -hmm. you know? And then eventually I was like, I've got this totally backwards. Like, no, that is like my greatest opportunity for improvement. If I like get shut down by a, you know, burly bro-y climb and then I unpack that and work on it and eventually do it like that, I need that to be able to climb these hard things that I want to do, even if they are like nuanced and very movement oriented. Like they climbing just gets physically hard, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was kind of like probably atypical in that way where a lot of people now they get so strong on the hangboard and the moonboard and things like that. It, it annoys me. I don't want, I, I get fired up about this. So I want to be careful because <laughs> we, we could just tangent about this yeah, stuff, yeah, but sure. it's been really interesting to see that like that is changing outdoor climbing grades. Like mm-hmm. basic climbs are getting downgraded because mm-hmm. people can crush them and then not do them the more technical thing. That's, you know, 50 feet away. Yeah. And, those grades used to make sense to me. Like, oh, that should be V9, this should be V7 or whatever. And now I feel like 
all the powerful stuff gets downgraded and the mm-hmm. technical stuff that's way less physically hard holds its grade. And now grades just like make are making less and less sense, at least for me, you know? And yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's interesting. It's like it's really shifting the sport, like the way that we train and the culture around it. I'm sure I've contributed to that through the podcast, but yeah, it's it's really noticeable. It's interesting. And it's something I think we there's there's a lot of historical precedent for that too, though, you know, and I think the pendulum swings all over the place over time. Um, I mean, a long time ago in, <laughs> I don't know, some old person's going to be like, what do you mean a long time ago? But like in the 90s, uh, you know, climbing gyms were a lot of vert terrain or like square cut roofs and stuff and sport climbing you know, modern sport climbing in America, at least started a lot in Smith Rock, just like very specific style. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you get this kind of vert techie, hold small holds, like that's, that's kind of what people's conception of climbing becomes. And then, you know, you have a place like Waco, which was really steep extended roof climbing and stuff. And people are like, holy shit, it's really fucking hard. Like I just came from Smith Rock and do you know uh, that you're describing me right now? Kind of. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like nobody here gets out alive in Waco is like mega. And, and th- but by today's standards with gyms that have tons of steep terrain and, and like where climbing holds have gone, like we have these huge jugs and stuff. And, and now like ripping around in steep terrain is chill. And people are like, oh, Waco's soft. And I'm like, well sort of like, like, what do you even mean by that? You know, yeah. like you guys were invented there. How can it possibly? Yeah. Be they were invented soft? there, but at the same time, like a particular style of climbing was seen as difficult and a different style was seen as hard. And, and even the features that you looked at and what you climbed, like were constrained by what people were thinking about at the time. Mm-hmm. And then now like the proliferation of, of actual like good sticky rubber knee bar pads has changed a bunch of stuff and um modern board climbing like i see young people and old i just see people doing the most insane stuff i've ever seen like on boards and like w- like are you the strongest person in the world and then i'll like turn around and see like uh like 18 year old kid one arming a half pad crimp and I'm like no that's the strongest person and then i turn around and there's a, like it's it's bonkers. And so, yeah, like then all of a sudden that style, people are so prepared in that style that those things start to feel soft. And then something really technical and weird that represents basically everything that board climbing isn't, all of a sudden that's like a really hard climb. And where previously it was the other way around. Mm. Um, Even when I moved to Colorado, uh, especially moved to the front range, Um, where I was kind of out of my Western slope bubble. And I was like, holy shit, all the bouldering out here is so hard. Like everything is hard, especially like the crimping. I was like, like, what the hell is this? Like, I don't understand. And it took me years (laughs) of bouldering out here to like learn how to climb like that and and, like turn myself into somebody who could crimp. Mm -hmm. And... And then I've recently caught myself being like, that shit's soft. And then like, man, 
10 years ago, Will would have had something else to say about that, right. you know? And it's, that's just a real thing, you know? The great grading is subjective. And so as the tastes of the day change and and what people think about climbing changes informs how they then go outside and go about it. And then our grades, like what we feel like is difficult changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen that over, like since the beginning of, of climbing and bouldering, like mm-hmm. it just, there's really no fixed point to kind of justify any of it off of. It's just a matter of what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. So it's, which is super interesting. I, I, you know, like a lot of things, you can, you can take that in a negative way or you can kind of embrace it as a positive. And I, yeah. I think it's, I think it's a really like kind of interesting thing about, you know, our sport or activity that, um, isn't as apparent in other things, at mm-hmm. least to me. That's really well said. Yeah, that's really well said. And I think uh, when I when I look at it through that lens, because like, you know, I I felt like grades. I'm thinking of Leavenworth, Washington, right now. The old guidebook, the first guidebook that came out, all the grades made sense to me. They fit my lived experience. Like the more technical stuff was physically easier than the straightforward burly stuff, but I could see how they were the same grade. And now I feel like the basic stuff's been downgraded. So I feel like weirdly skewed now, Mm. but it makes sense that I would be because all of my early climbing was like very skill-based, whether it was like on small slippery crimps in my gym that was like 10 degrees overhung, or if it was feature squeezing in Leavenworth, it was very like micro beta balanced, skill-based, and I didn't get a foundation of like basic steep board climbing or hangboarding until much later. And now that that's like a more normal part of like, like a normal, you know, part of the mix for, for the average climber, it makes sense that it, that a well-rounded climber looks different now mm-hmm. than who I am, you know, the product of like kind of a skewed preparation where I didn't have access to a tension board too, yeah. or, or like a moon board or anything until I was. Like I mean, I would say 20s. that this, like, it's it's equally skewed, no matter what. Like, I think mm-hmm. a, right the concept of a well-rounded climber moves. Mm-hmm. Right. You know. Right. 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 Um, and 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 I I also I wonder to what extent the I mean. I, I wonder, I know there's an effect, I, how pronounced, I'm not sure, but you do have people now who do these assessments, do this strength training, expect success at a certain level, and then that affects what they think grades are mm-hmm. when they go outside. And what's interesting about it, and not that either way of, of this is right or wrong, but like, it's interesting to me that for a lot of climbers, the first reaction is that the wrong exists outside of myself, <laughs> you know, like, oh, the grade's wrong mm. or whatever, not maybe I don't know how to do this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? like that's, or maybe I'm really, really good at this or yeah. Or maybe, yeah, maybe I'm just really fucking strong mm-hmm. or something. It's, mm-hmm. it's always that the grades wrong or these other people are wrong or, or whatever. And, and it's rarely like a, a look inward of like, Oh, you know, I've, I, I used to, so an example is I, I used to always hear that, uh, 
Joe's was soft. Mm-hmm. Um, like 10 to 15 years ago, that was like, everyone was like, oh, Joe's is soft. And from the very beginning, I was like, mm, Joe's isn't soft. It's just really comparable to a climbing gym. Exactly. Right? Like the holds are really defined. Even the footholds are really defined. Like it's either flat, like the just like sandstone, or there's a dimple here and that's your foot. And then that's your crimp. And it, it's very, and, and this is, you know, broad strokes. There's complicated stuff in Joe's too, but like it's very basic climbing. And if you grow up climbing in a climbing gym, you go there and you're going to be really comfortable. And, and I think that that sentiment of Joe's being soft, one back then was a way to kind of denigrate gym climbers, first of all, which mm. is not that cool to do the denigration of gym climbers, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> um, but it's also something that I don't hear anymore. Hmm. Really? Definitely not like I heard it That's 10 or 15 years ago. Same. Um, if oh. anything, what started happening is people are upset that they can't do things and they are chipping them easier. Mm. Like that's a huge shift. And I think that at least to me, the, like what's obvious about that is like, well, for a lot, like the gym climbing, it just has continued and will continue to play more and more of a role in like climbing as a thing that people do and will shape, will continue to shape the taste of everybody who, who participates. And I think that's something that, I think that's actually a really heavy responsibility for gyms and for route setters, like people who have decided that like route setting is the thing that they're going to do. Um, it's really, it's shaping people's conception of climbing. And then when they go outside, they bring that with them and that's serious. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like I, I almost never hear somebody say that Joe's is soft or downgrade something. Mm. Um, where when I first went to Joe's, I, th- I feel like, I, you know, maybe similar to you tend to excel more on subtle kind of technical weird things. Um, and when I first went to Joe's, I thought it was hard as shit. Yeah. Um, because it, it took away all of the things that I was good at. Yeah. It neutralized your superpowers. Yeah. And all of a sudden I just had to hang on to those holds and pull <laughs> from one to another and use that foot. Cause it's the only one there and there are no options. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I climbed there a ton and it, it really improved me as a climber, like, engaging with that style and learning how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just, I, th- I think that's, it's really interesting the way that kind of tastes change and, uh, and what is sort of driving that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember having the exact same impression of Joe's. I don't even know who told me or how I had the impression that it was soft, but I definitely like absorbed that through the ether. That was like the common sentiment. And then I went there coming from, you know, most of my climbing having been in Leavenworth leading up to that or like Squamish and places like that. And I was like, oh, people are conflating doability with difficulty. And what I noticed in Joe's, it's the same thing that I noticed in the gym for myself personally is that like I can do things really reliably and quickly, 
up to a certain grade. And then it's just mm. like, just like a hard <laughs> smash in the face. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah. I, the first time I went to Joe's and spent a few weeks there, I climbed like every V7 I tried. I did like, you know, a V7, like every single day I went climbing and was like, holy shit, like I'm really consistent at this grade, but couldn't touch a V9, you know? could barely touch any of the V8s. Like V10, no way. Mm-hmm. And e- even when I've gone back more recently, it's it's moved up a little bit, but it's the same thing. Like V10 and Joe's feels so binary. Like yes, no. <laughs> yeah. Can, can yeah. do it, can't do yeah. it, you know? Whereas like in Leavenworth or Waco even, there's so much more, there's so many more options and nuance and problem solving. I can really like bring things down a lot further to my level. Like yeah. I can take a V11 and like bring it down to my physical strength level. Or find something that fits you, uh-huh. you know? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. given to kind of our point about earlier about, you know, a best way, um, you know, the best way for me, like if, in a perfect world, like if I could have my foot anywhere to do this move, like I'm going to pick a sp- different spot than you're going to pick. Like my legs are different length. My arms are di- like, mm-hmm. I'm just a different guy. And I find that when I climb on granite more often than not, like things where the the texture is more aggressive and kind of the topography of, of the quote unquote blank sections of rock uh, are a little more like contrasting. I Like I can find that little bit of a smear that for me makes a great difference. Mm-hmm. And then I go to, or, or like taking a hold with like a slightly different dimple. Cause like, you know, I'm, I'm stronger in these fingers or I prefer to like position myself this way and I can, I can accommodate that. Right. Um, and then go somewhere like Joe's and it's like, well, the foot's there and like the, the crimp's there and that's the good spot. And there's really only one way to fit your hand in there. Like binary, like either I can do it or I can't do it. And that is also oversimplifying. Like, even given those kind of fixed points, there's a lot that the climber has access to just in the way that they position and move their body sure. and, and all of that to, to again, kind of find that individual way through. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that is a really interesting thing. And I, you know, when travel in climbing, I think is something that when I was growing up seemed uh, like really linked, um, you know, going to all of these areas and I was too young to do it. Um, but like, I'd hear people talk about it and it was, it, it was always kind of clear to me that things are going to feel different in different places. And I really felt like I learned how to rock climb in Gunnison Cause up to then, you know, I would go to the new for a weekend every now and then. Um, but I really didn't, I really didn't climb outside that much. Um, to, to climb outside in, in Maryland often, like it's a lot of driving, um, you know, there, there, and there is climbing closer, but I didn't know about it. And, you know, things have just changed so much since then, but, uh, you know, I felt like I wanted to rock climb, but it just wasn't something that I could do. And then when I, I moved to Gunnison, the, the cool thing about Gunnison, there's a lot of cool things, um, but one of them is like that access to a lot of different rock types. 
like within 30 minutes, there's multiple different kinds of granite, there's limestone, there's different kinds of sandstone. And so I got to be exposed to a lot of different kinds of climbing. Like I didn't feel like I like came up just climbing in one style. And that's something that I feel like has served me ever since. Mm-hmm. And um, and really drove home like how different it can be on different rock types in different areas, given different kinds of features. Um, and so I felt like I got to travel a lot, but didn't actually have to go anywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, cool. And yeah, I wonder, I wonder how that plays out now because the crags are busy, right? Like, especially kind of the big ones, you know, people go annually to Red Rocks or Waco or Bishop or Squamish or Colorado or whatever. And I would think that the folks who are able to do that, like it's, you know, I mean, you do that. Mm -hmm. How, how has that kind of affected the way that you interact with climbing or the, or the grades or yourself or how you sort of conceive of what's hard or what's not? Yeah. It's, it's changed everything for me. I mean, I've had different chapters. Like I had the Leavenworth feature climbing chapter, couldn't climb on like basic crimpy things to save my life. Then went to Smith Rock, had seven years there, kind of reinvented myself got really good at that specific thing relative to, you know, the rest of my abilities. And then now I've had to reinvent myself again, or I've chosen to, I guess, but I'm way less defined, you know, like now I like spend a lot of time in Waco, but then I also climb, um, intense sleep sometimes, or I've, you know, tried some of the routes in like the cathedral or, uh, the fin cave and things like that, or the hurricane everything's so different that I I used to have a sense of like, this is where I'm at as a climber. And now I'm like all over the place, totally depends. (laughs) Um, And, and you get a lot better at things that you can apply to other things. And you also lose things. Like I'm definitely worse at that Smith rock style now than I was Mm. four years ago. But I think I've learned a lot of things that I could bring back to it and probably be better than I was before if I chose to focus in like that again. So it's really a mix, but I mean, the, the coolest thing about it has been that Waco style climbing wasn't even on my radar. Like it wasn't Mm. until I was like 28 or maybe even 30 and left Bend, Oregon that I discovered that like really hard climbing can be fun. (laughs) I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like central Oregon bouldering is like fucking heinous. Mm -hmm. And it's really fun up through like V9. And then there's a couple things here and there that are really good that are hard. But I mean, you get above like V10 or 11 and it's, you know, on the whole, fucking nasty. Mm-hmm. And same with Smith Rock. You get to 14A and you're trying to send, you know, a 14A in the agrigoli or something. And it's like, cool. Do you want fucked up tweaky crimps or do you want fucked up tweaky pockets? Like <laughs> you, you get to choose, you know? Yeah. But then you go to St. George and you're like, oh, this is like amazing. Like these cruxes are fun. Still hard, mm-hmm. really hard. So I I think traveling and trying different things has allowed me to figure out what I actually enjoy the most in, in climbing. And um, I may never go back to those things at Smith. I don't know. But 
it changed everything. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm actually built. I mean, that's why I've, that's why I was able to kind of break the cycle of disordered eating and things like that. Like, oh, if I let myself put on muscle, it actually serves me in these mm. other areas and these other styles. Yeah. And that can be like a really cool thing. Um, I don't have to fit myself into this other box anymore because that's all I had, you know? So it's changed everything. It also has made grades way more confusing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a, that is a really common sentiment that I have heard from a lot of folks. Like the, the longer they climb and certainly like the, the further they push themselves and push into harder and harder grades, the more confusing it gets. And that's certainly something I feel myself like sometimes I find myself getting really frustrated by it. And then other times like it, you know, it just doesn't mean anything to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I sort of waffle back and forth and everywhere in between, depending on, <laughs> on the day sometimes, but it rears its head in some kind of funny ways. I mean, recently we've seen, um, and especially at the top level grades, I think we, we see the, the weirdness the most, both because it's what's portrayed most often like in the in the media like it so it's as onlookers the sort of climbing fandom that's what people are focused on is who's climbing the hardest grades like what are the hardest climbs in the world who are the best climbers who are doing them blah 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 and we kind of follow that recreationally um and also you know by nature of those things being really hard there are often only a handful of people who can do them and so you're getting, you're only getting a few opinions. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also, I mean, and this, this goes all the way down, but like there are different incentive structures uh, socially or professionally that make people feel a certain way about the grades. Like if I'm on the fence, like what does it mean if I take the low one or take the high one? Like that could mean, uh, you know, getting a, pat on the back from my sponsors or not, or like, you know, there's no, not really mags anymore, but front page of the internet type stuff and, um, and all that. And it just seems like it gets muddier. And at the end of the day, like really what's happening is these are really talented, strong climbers who are climbing really difficult rocks in the woods. And like that, it's impressive. Like when something has only been climbed a couple of times or, or whatever, and, and and as like, you know, a group of people partaking in the sport and we're kind of like watching it get really focused on the grades. And I understand why, like, it's sort of how we communicate, right? Like climbing is super varied and the grade is something that, you know, we've developed as a way to compare font to Waco, hugely different styles, but like you can compare grades. And so you know, when you, I feel like the more you understand climbing, the less you worry about the grade and the more you can just look at the feet itself mm -hmm. and sort of judge it independently mm -hmm. of that. Um, and I would kind of also encourage people to think like that a little bit more, like mm -hmm. look at the accomplishment and kind of let that stand and the grade will come out in the washer. It won't. Like, yeah, yeah. Who knows? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's great. I want to get back to something you said a while ago. Um, you know, we were talking about our kind of evolutions through training and trying to figure all that out. And you've had these like points of clarity, uh, you know, clarity maybe is in air quotes there sure. along the way where you're like, I have a lot of conviction right now. I'm pulling my hair out that not everyone is doing this one thing. Mm-hmm. And you still have that, but it sounds like it's more focused on principles now mm-hmm. versus like specific hangboard protocols or whatever. Um, let's expand on that. What are sure. some of those things if we haven't, if there's some that we haven't touched yeah. on? I mean, I think, I think the, probably the most fundamental one is just like climbing. Understanding that climbing is a really, uh, I mean, it's, it's very uh, non-constrained, which is something that makes it really different from a lot of other sports. I guess there aren't a ton of rules and the field of play, like whether it's something in a gym or a rock outside, like it's different every single time. And I think the what's common right now is to look at climbing as uh, like something that, uh, what's, what's the best way to put this? There seems like there's like a lot of box checking, like people mm. trying to check boxes. Um, whether that, and I think there are a number of forces in climbing at the moment that are kind of playing into that in one form or another. Uh, sort of the, the gamification of the whole thing mm-hmm. has turned it into more of a kind of a consumptive model of like, do this climb, check the box, do this climb, check the box, check enough of this grade, get a badge, blah, blah, blah. Like that kind of thing. Like I'm a climber, I'm a V6 climber. What kind of a climber are you? You know, like that kind of thing. And um, it's, people should be able to climb however they want, right? Um, But I think we need to be careful about to what extent we promote one approach over another. Mm. And I think that what's interesting to me about climbing is that it can be pursued in a really broad variety of ways. And that's not something that happens in a lot of other sports or activities. You know, like it, you can climb recreationally, which is what you and I do. And we're, I don't know, I'm 34 now. Like how many other like 34-year-old people are this into basketball mm-hmm. or totally. soccer? Like I, I know folks who who uh, who are my age who are like really into indoor soccer or whatever, and they play in an indoor soccer league and, and whatever. But like climbing just feels different than that. You know, like I could go bouldering, I could go sport climbing, I could go big wall climbing, single pitch trad climbing, I could go to a gym. There's a lot of different gyms in different ways. I could be a comp climber, you know, like I could, I could climb in some way that like is really ridiculous and no one's ever thought of, but is just some constraint that I've decided to put on myself to do it a certain way and whatever. Mm -hmm. And I can find enjoyment in that. So I don't want to sound like I'm just straight shitting on people who are like, want to tick those boxes and have those accomplishments and do it that way. Like that's cool. Um, But 
there are other ways and that that I don't see as see as often kind of in the popular conversation. Um, and I think that that has really shaped what uh, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so like the, the content that's out there and like what's in the popular conversation about how to go about climbing, whether it's how to learn about it or like how to train for it or when and where to go do it um, is constrained in a way that I think doesn't really do justice to climbing mm. being this really broad thing. Mm. And so when you look at the training, like it's, it's very, um, like most of the popular accounts are talking about very specific exercises that you could do, very specific protocols you could do, which edge is better than that edge. Like, is it worth training pinch blocks? Should I be stretching? If so, how much? Oh wait, stretching's horrible. You don't want to stretch. Like, oh, you're working out with dumbbells. That's lame. Like only barbell training or, or like whatever it is, like rings, throw your rings away. It's just got crazy. And it's like, well, I mean, maybe, maybe for a certain person trying to do a certain thing, you could be totally right. But it's rarely handled with that level of like context or nuance. And some folks are trying, like I, at the same time, I don't want to shit on all the people like making their living in the climbing training space. I mean, I make my living in the climbing industry, you know? Um, and it's, it's just, it's, it's pushing kind of a really, what to me seems like a really one-sided way of, of going about these things. Cause it's not about the exercise. It, it's about f like one, like first and foremost, figuring out like, what's your goal? What do you even like about climbing? What about doing it is like, is fun for you? And how do you want to progress? What even does progression look like for you? What could it look like? Does it have to be climbing the next grade? Could it be climbing this grade in a lot of styles? Could it be being able to climb at a certain level in a bunch of different areas? Or there's just, there are a lot of ways to do that. And once you have a better understanding of what you're trying to do, it becomes a lot easier to vet all this other stuff and like figure out how to actually do what you want to do. Mm -hmm. So like if you're uh, like, especially a comp climber and you're not like working on your mobility, you're missing. Mm -hmm. Like you more than anybody have to turn around, look at an, uh, like an unknown challenge and you got five minutes to do it. Like you, you don't know what it is. So like, you can't, it's not like you or I where I'm like, okay, I'm trying this compression boulder. So I can just tailor all of my training for the next, however long I want specifically to like make me be able to just squeeze really freaking hard. And then I'm like, I'll go do that problem and then I'll pick another project and I can, adjust my training around what that looks like. A comp climber, that's not their world. Right. And so what they do should probably look different than somebody who's like working on one outdoor project at a time. Mm -hmm. um, and there are tons of different comparisons. You pick any way of climbing and like there's, 
there are just different ways to prepare and to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater of like, oh, this is, we don't, we don't dumbbell train anymore. We don't kettlebell or, or like in the next five years, people will probably be like, like, oh, you're lifting with a barbell. Like that's so 2020, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. it's all of this stuff is cyclical. And I think what's, what's more important than like catching every new wave is just like figuring out what, like what you're even doing. And then you can more easily like tailor, you know, what your training looks like, or if you're even quote unquote training at all. Mm -hmm. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Green Chef. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. Let Green Chef take the work out of eating well this holiday season with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes featuring fresh ingredients with nothing artificial. Choose from recipes featuring lean proteins like turkey and sockeye salmon, scallops and shrimp and more, certified organic whole fruits, vegetables and eggs, and plenty of whole grain options if that is your thing. I love Green Chef because I'm gluten-free and follow a paleo way of eating. That means I eat meat and fruit and vegetables, and they have tons of recipes that feature organic produce and sustainably sourced ingredients that are perfect for me. And if you eat differently than I do, that works too. Green Chef has countless delicious meal options for every lifestyle, including quick and easy, protein-packed, we talked about protein in this episode, Mediterranean, keto, gluten-free, plant-based, and more. The last Green Chef meal I had was creamy Italian pork soup with cauliflower, kale, and tomato mushroom broth. It was super easy. The whole process took 30 minutes and it was delicious. Right now, my dear listeners, Green Chef is offering you an amazing deal for the holidays. For Green Chef's best deal of the year, get $250 off with code NUGGET250 at greenchef.com slash nugget250. Again, that's greenchef.com slash nugget250. That's the word nugget250. And use code nugget250 at checkout to save $250. That's like a rope and 12 quick draws you can buy just by using this discount code and eating delicious food. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. And now back to the show. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I kind of lost. I, I went off on another tangent, but um, I have a question for yeah. you. Unless you want to no, keep no, no, going, go, go for okay. it. Okay, let's dive into principles um, because you spend a lot of time climbing on a board. Mm-hmm. You make boards. You make hang boards. You use them both a lot. You work with a bunch of passionate climbers who all session together after work and all climb on the boards. Let's speak to people who are listening to a climbing podcast because they want to get stronger at outdoor rock climbing. Mm -hmm. They want to send a harder thing, whether Mm -hmm. it's specific or they just want to level up in general and climb harder grades. Um, Those are the people we're talking to. Yep. Do you see trends? Like, are there things that most of the good climbers do consistently? Mm Because like, I know that, you know, going back to what we said, the baseball analogy, we don't want to cherry pick all-stars from the Red Sox or whatever and like copy them. But a lot of these things are scalable and we can kind of start working on the same things. Yeah. 
are there things that like most climbers should do at some level? Is it a matter of like spending more time on a board period or spending some time on a hangboard in conjunction with like trying to get outside on rock as much as possible period? Like, are there things like that for you? Yeah. Yeah. The number one thing is go rock climbing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like everyone, everyone that I know <laughs> that like, or, or know of even that climbs hard on rock, like they go rock climbing and that's a priority for them. I mean, people move from all over the country here just to be able to do that, mm -hmm. you know? And so, uh, <laughs> like that's, that's it. Like you can't, you can't do it if you don't go try it, mm -hmm. you know? And so these are people who, whenever there's an opportunity, go to the project mm -hmm. or, or go rock climbing at all. Um, because the, there's a skill to the rock climbing that is not replicable anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And if climbing hard rock climbs is the goal, is the thing that you want to do, you have to be doing it. And if you're not, and you still, and you feel like you go outside and you crush, like that's not your level. It's much higher than that. Mm. Um, but to our point about somewhere like Joe's, like there are places where you can climb primarily in a gym and go outside and more or less feel right at home. Yeah. Top outs are still spicy and landings are still different and there, there's other variables at work, but like, if you just zoom in on the moves and the holds, yeah, like you're, you're, you're probably relatively well prepared also depending on, you know the gym you're climbing in and, and all that. But yeah. Yeah. If you're trying to climb harder, like you have to go rock climbing and there's just no way around that. Anything else is, is just an attempt to do your best with what you've got, mm. which is also mega respectable. Not everybody can pick up their life and move to a place where they can climb outside on a weekly basis mm -hmm. or go live in a van or what have you, right? Like everybody has different lives. And so if you're a person who, you know, doesn't have rock climbing accessible to them, but you want to climb hard on rock, I think that the thing that you really need to expose yourself to is as many different styles as you possibly can. And one of the styles is board climbing, you know, the, uh, like a climbing gym, somewhere where there's routes being set, there's more opportunity to have a diversity of styles than there is on a board. With the TB2, especially like we wanted to push the whole diversity as far as we felt like we could and like tweaked some things about the way the holds sit on the wall to kind of fake a level of dimension that isn't really there. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, like it's a flat piece of plywood and there's only so much you're going to get out of that. Mm. Um, and when you get on a hangboard, like you're further constraining, like what you're working on, that's what makes a hangboard effective though. So I think a, a mixture of things is always really important mm -hmm. and the proportion 
to which you kind of are taking in all these different stimuli, like depends on, well, where are you going climbing? Mm -hmm. Like, what is the climb that you're trying to do? What rock type or whatever? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you're planning a yearly trip to Waco, yeah, man, do some hangboarding. (laughs) Like Waco's about getting behind shit and pulling for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, you get those sweet, like, swoopy like pinches and slopers and and all that stuff um but it's like a really physical physical climbing style and you know if you were going to waco to climb the rhino you'd probably prepare differently than if you were going to waco and trying to climb free willy Mm -hmm. you know so um i don't know that's my way of sort of uh, dodging your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I mean, the, the reason I was excited to talk to you is because of the way you think about this stuff. Um, it really helped me on my own journey, like I said, at the start of the convo. And I, I know that a lot of people, like I had a conversation with, uh, with Nick Rummel and then another one with Alex Biale. They both have like really resonated with the way you think. And it's, you know, when someone connects with it, it can do what it did for me, which is let go of that question that I was hung up on for so long. What's the best way? It's like, okay, <sighs> doesn't matter. Like yeah. it's still worth thought. Like I still want to like be thoughtful and, and intelligent in my approach and make the best use of my time, depending on what my goals are. But it's been incredibly freeing to move away from that narrow thinking and yeah. obsessing over like, is this the best protocol or am I blowing it? It's like, mm-hmm. no, that's just not the right way of thinking about it. Something that was that I was just thinking about when you were talking just now is another big and hugely positive shift for me that's come out of living in the van, being able to travel and climb in a wider variety of spaces is I realized that not all climbing styles are created equal in the way that they develop you as an overall climber. Mm-hmm. Like Smith Rock was amazing for teaching me a lot. Teaching me, um, I learned a lot very deeply, very narrowly in this mm-hmm. like one style and I got a lot better at it. And I learned a lot of skills from that that have applied to all my other climbing. And yet it's not physically hard the way that weight goes hard. It's not even close. It's it's physically hard in a specific way. Like you have to, like my, I remember my calves were so pumped the first like few <laughs> weeks that I climbed there and like my calves got stronger. My toes got stronger climbing there. My fingers obviously got better at holding on to small fucked up holds. But um, I really think that if I were to continue climbing there and grow, I would have to strategically supplement with heavier hangboarding on bigger holds and like weight training and doing some power lifting type stuff, you know, just to get that body strength. If I spend three months, months and months in Waco, I don't have to fucking do any of that. All I have to do is not get injured and I will get better and stronger at the same time. Preach. And, yeah. <laughs> and then I can, and then I can bring that back to Smith later if I want, like I said, but that's, I think that is what is so brilliant. And I think that's what you've tried to do with the tension board too. I'm a huge fan of the tension board too. And I think you guys have tried to approximate as best as you can, the physical challenge of a certain type of outdoor rock climbing that kind of lands in that sweet spot where you can climb a lot 
and approximate rock climbing and build skill inside in a convenient way and cover your bases and like mm-hmm. get a little stronger from it, get powerful, get stronger fingers and and whatever. And it's probably not the best tool for a Fontainebleau trip, you know, like yeah. <laughs> maybe like the grasshopper is better for that or something, or like just climbing in the commercial gym. But for a lot of outdoor rock climbing, especially in Colorado or, you know, like steep limestone and rifle or, um, or Waco tanks or Rocklands, you guys have like really kind of nailed it as far as like, if you can't go climbing all the time, you can use this thing that approximates climbing and gives you a lot of those benefits. And then all of a sudden you don't, you don't have to worry about that other stuff very much. Like you, you can do some deadlifting if that's a weakness of yours, but you probably don't need to, you know, the only thing if I'm doing that consistently, either climbing on steep rock or climbing on like a steep board, I just need to like make sure my body's healthy and balanced and I'm not only pulling all the time. Like maybe I do a little supplemental push-ups or kettlebell presses or something. It can be so simple. So yeah, that's been a huge shift for me. I like really got uh, geeky when I lived at Smith and felt like I had to be, you know? It's kind of like, being in the weeds with a weird diet or something. It's like, I really had to be super methodical and make sure all the pieces were there to feel like I was growing as a climber. And yeah, then I went to Waco for three months and was like, cool. Came out of the trip stronger than before. And Mm -hmm. I just tried hard boulders that were cool the whole time. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's another thing that, that I want to mention too. And something that, interesting about climbing is that we we are all we almost always talk about training and you you can like you don't have to and there are a lot of people who kind of just want to climb and like enjoy it and are often turned off by the really intense training culture that climbing has where, and, and and this I'm sure varies location to location, but certainly if you're talking about the front range of Colorado, it's like everybody's got a project mm-hmm. or a trip or something and they're training for it. And in a lot of ways, their whole lives revolve around it. Um, but that's also just one way of going about it. Um, and, some people just like to climb because it's fun because it's really freaking fun right? Um, at kind of whatever level. Actually, the harder it gets in many ways, I think the less fun it becomes. Um, and like you can, you can also just enjoy climbing. Um, so I didn't, I wanted to make sure to at least mention that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Because I've, I've seen that turn a lot of people off to climbing to the point that they actually just quit. Mm. Um, and that's a bummer. At the same time, not everything does have to be for everybody. Like I like climbing. I don't like basketball. Like mm-hmm. basketball doesn't need to change so that Will Anglin likes it, you know? <laughs> and I think yeah. there's a way to sort of balance the inclusion with like the the activity itself. And And I think in... I don't think climbing necessarily needs to, like the act of it needs to change. 
um, to like suit any individual. But what's so cool, like I said, about climbing is that it is so broad. There's often a way of going about it that someone can enjoy that isn't offered by a lot of the other activities people do. Yeah. Um, and when we overfocus as, you know, uh, I, I, I'm trying not to use the word community because uh, I don't think that there is one. Hmm. <laughs> like that there's, uh, actually somebody wrote, um, I'll send you the link for the show notes, but it's a very well done uh, write up about, like there is, that there is no climbing community. Like hmm. by definition, that's just the wrong way to use the word. That, I mean, uh, Initially, I was like, huh, that's confusing. I feel like we say climbing community all the time and I have a deep sense of what that means. But at the same time, like I would never say the baseball community. Like that makes no sense. Right. Like what are we talking about? Exactly. Like yeah. we're just a bunch of people who like to go climbing in some form or another. And I think the nature of climbing actually fragments that larger group of people more so than almost any other activity. Like the diversity of the types of communities that exist in climbing is, is broad. Right. Um, and just saying the climbing community at large, like doesn't necessarily do that justice mm -hmm. and also kind of makes it sound like there's a cohesion at a level where there really is not one. Right. Right. Um, right. That's a good point. And so I, I, anyway, that's a whole other tangent, but all I'm trying to say is like when in the kind of popular media, we get this very singular view of what climbing is. Like it's this thing that you commit your whole life to, you train for, you base your diet around, all your vacations around, like like what you, the podcasts you listen to, the books you read, like it becomes this super insulating, like all encompassing thing that like, if that's what you want to do, awesome. But that also is not representative of climbing. And like, you can do it other ways and those other ways are totally valid mm -hmm. as well. And yeah, One's not better than another. Um, so it's, uh, that's another thing that has turned me off over the years to like talking about training because I've seen it. It's been that sort of conception of climbing and sort of the way that it, it can sort of hijack your life has been destructive for me in the past. And I see it as destructive in other people mm. also. Um, it's, yeah, you know, double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. So um, the goal can also just be to like have fun and have this really fun and like engaging activity that you do alongside the rest of your life. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to be hyper like focused and training oriented and all that. Right. I mean, um, I like that. <laughs> right, 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 right. But, you know, I'm just one guy. Yeah. You know? No, I completely agree with everything you're saying. I like it too, obviously. Um, but I, I also need a mix of things like 
I'm so glad I didn't brand this as a training podcast because what the fuck do you talk about for 200 episodes? <laughs> you know, like I would have really burnt out by now. And I need to have conversations that's just about a person in their life um, who, you know, they're a climber, so it's relevant. Yeah. But we barely talk about climbing like that. I need to have those conversations too. So I kind of like dip in and out of it. Um, but it's interesting. So you said that there's been times in your life where you were, it was too consuming, like you were mm -hmm. too integrated in climbing. The first thought was like, well, you built a climbing training company. Like, <laughs> I know. So how do you feel about <laughs> it now? Like you are uh, so, you, you seem to be, you know, meeting you at the shop the other day and seeing what you've built and seeing like the number of employees that work for mm -hmm. you, you know, and, and, um, now their livelihoods are kind of on the line and it's so completely immersive. It's got to just saturate like your whole life. How do you feel about climbing now? Do you feel like you have life climbing <laughs> work balance at all? Or I feel really, really conflicted about it all the time, every single day. <laughs> <laughs> and there is no break from it. Mm. Um, you know, my life has changed a ton, um, like since tension started and because of the company, you know, in some ways good, in some ways not so good. Um, it feels like a lot of things to balance. I think one thing I have had to be, ha had to get pretty good at just by necessity is being able to kind of create separations, um, on my own, you know, um, like my, my personal climbing is like for me, you know, and I don't feel the need to share it like on a broad, in a broad public way, like, uh, I used to, um, you know, I talk with my friends about it. Um, and, and I want to hear what they're up to, you know, but, um, you know, I rarely post about it on Instagram that like, I'm not dead, you know, like I'm climbing. <laughs> uh, it's just, uh, you know, what it does for me has changed and it's something that, uh, I do that is, that adds a lot to my life and helps me be better in all sorts of other ways that are important to me. Um, and I'm still like, I'm, I'm better than I've ever been, you know? Mm. Uh, like, it's not that I've, uh, like fallen off, fallen or off or given up or like, I'm not trying hard anymore or whatever. Like, if anything, it's, I, I'm trying better, like, than I ever have. Uh, and tension as a company, um, like, occupies a different part of my life. I think as it's grown, the um, one of the biggest priorities for me with tension is, uh, like, to support people, like, in their lives by having a job, you know, um, that can pay the bills and is also like flexible in enough ways where they can also 
you know, pursue whatever else is important to them in their life, whether that's climbing or not. Mm-hmm. They don't really care. There are there are almost exclusively climbers, but not everybody is a climber. And certainly not everybody climbs in the same way. And climbing means different things mm-hmm. to each of them, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and And I think that with tension, I also... I want to to be able to present climbing in a way that is more indicative of of certainly what it means to me um, and to the other people at the company who climb, um, even just as a way of like rep- just to represent another way um, and. In some ways, I think we're we've been successful in doing that. In other ways, less successful. I mean, it's been just the single largest learning experience of my entire life. I didn't go into this. I didn't want to even do it, <laughs> to be frank. Uh, it just sort of happened, um, and uh, and so I had to do it, hmm. and so I did. <laughs> uh, and so I like it. Um, I do have a lot of conflicting thoughts about it, mm. um, about climbing, about the industry, about what we think of as the climbing community, mm-hmm. um, business in general as a concept. <laughs> like just, you know, it's it's a it's been a wild ride, really, um, and. Uh, like I, I also live a life outside of tension and climbing, um, into all sorts of things. I like to read books. Uh, I, uh, I like to play music. Hmm. Um, I played guitar real shitty in, in high school, uh, played mandolin a ton through college with like, like little bluegrass groups and stuff. And that was wicked fun. Um, but I've always loved metal. That's like my favorite genre or jazz. And luckily there's a lot of Crossover music there. that yeah, that yeah. combines the two. And um, uh, started playing guitar again uh, over the pandemic. Uh, well, actually really, cause like we moved into this, uh, like uh, the mandolin is piercing. It's just such a sharp sound, uh, which is great. It, it, I love it, but like when you're living apartment to apartment, there are 600 square foot studios and thin walls. Like you can't just be ripping, you know, like that's not cool. Yeah. Uh, and so I just never played and I had really bad carpal tunnel, ended up having surgery in 2017. But for mm. the longest time, like I couldn't play. I'd pick, I'd pick an instrument up and in five minutes, my hands would be numb. Dude, I had the same thing. And that was uh, upsetting to me. Um, but so I... I didn't play for a long time, partly because of the carpal tunnel, partly because of just where I lived. And then um, eventually got the carpal tunnel sorted during the pandemic. I, like most people, was like, well, what do I do? Um, I was like, well, I could play guitar again because like an electric guitar, you can put headphones on and it's really not that loud. And we were living in like a really tiny apartment at the time. And so I was like, this works. This is something I can do. And oh shit, like my hands don't go numb anymore. Actually, this is really enjoyable. Did you just have the release surgery and then you were sorted? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, as far as the carpal tunnel symptoms were concerned, it yeah, had yeah. a huge impact on my climbing, uh, positively and mostly negatively. We can talk about that if you want. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, and then uh, Zach Gronwald, who's our like machining manufacturing director at Tension, he's also, he's a great, he's a guitar player as well. And is and we're into like the same music and, um, and we built guitars. Uh, cause like we had CNC machines, so we just built ourselves some <laughs> guitars and that was like a really fun That's cool. thing. It had nothing to do with climbing. It like scratched all the weird little like idiosyncrasies about things that I like, like, uh, doing like really detailed hand fret work and just, it just took a long time and very detail oriented and all that. And I'm into that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, anyway, I mean, there's just all sorts of other stuff, yeah. you know, um, and my climbing hasn't suffered because of any of it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but also, even if I wanted to, like, I couldn't go rock climbing four days a week, you mm -hmm. know? Like, I got other shit to do. I don't have the time. Got to pay the bills. So mm -hmm. um, I do have time to fill and luckily a lot of other interests to fill it with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's super cool. I'm curious as far as tension goes and the evolution of that company, you know, it's so cool to see how it's grown over time. At first it was, um, well, did, did you guys start with the tension board one? Did that come out right away or did you do hangboards and other stuff? Sort of. I mean, we, we really started with campus rungs, right? Which is a thing that had always just irritated me over the years is, is it like, it's just, it's like nobody touched the concept of campus rungs since like Wolfgang was ripping around on it in <laughs> Germany, you know? And it's like, well. It's zero innovation. It would be great to like have the numbers just on the rungs. Cause like when you're doing a hard campus board workout, you're just like, it's kind of like fog of war. You're just like, ah, you're just ripping, you know? And uh, oftentimes you like go to the wrong rung or whatever, you just can get lost really mm -hmm. quick. And so I was like, I want to look up and see all these damn numbers. And so curved fronts, <laughs> there's the numbers tweaking like, okay, if 15 degrees is standard campus board angle, how should the rungs sit on it to actually be comfortable? Turns out if the rungs are flat, like yep. to like per parallel to the ground, it hurts like shit. Hmm. Um, it, it, it's not cool. Um, so if you mount tension campus rungs on a 15 degree campus board, they're actually five degree slopers. Mm. Um, but that's why they're comfortable and that's why they're the shit. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, just went down that rabbit hole, started with those. Um, I used to make all those by hand and it was a nightmare. Um, there's still a lot of handwork to them, but we're can afford now to get them partially molded like from the mill and do the rest of the work in the shop. But I, you know, was taking boards. Actually, this coffee table is one of, uh, was a board that we ordered for campus rungs, but it was too pretty and I didn't want to make it into <laughs> campus rungs. So I saved it for years and years and years until like three years ago, I made it into this coffee table. Oh, and so it was half this width. I like doubled it, but Imagine wrestling a 12-foot board that wide multiple times through a table saw and then multiple times through a shaper and then back through a table saw and 
all the while trying not to screw up like the depth or the round over or cut your hand off or whatever. So um, anyway, we started with that and um, I've been coaching climbing for a long time and kind of had free reign at the gym to kind of set the system walls and the earth treks on the East coast, those gyms were really ahead of their time in a lot of ways. And so like they built winch operated adjustable system walls there in like 2015, like that you go into a gym and they got one now, but like mm. that was really new at the time. And, um, I got to set those. Mm. And so over years, like I would experiment with different layouts and the way that I dealt with the youth team was often like working in stations and cycling kids through different stations with different coaches. Like it, you know, dealing with 30 kids at a time is kind of a mess. Um, and it was like, how can I squeeze the most juice out of this like adjustable wall as a station? Like what's it good for? And started setting these symmetrical like you go find holds in the bin in the back and like roughly approximate what a mirror would be um, and set these things. And was like, I'm trying to teach these kids how to like backstep or cross through or what like really kind of trying to build like a taxonomy of climbing movement and then have a wall that you could, that could represent that and then could progress the difficulty in and whatever. And so that was how I was coaching um, or, or was a part of how I was like coaching and training kids. Um, and then I was, you know, you, you look at Europe and, um, everyone's got like wood holds and, uh, I wanted those. I was like, wood holds are sick. Like I, for all the reasons wood holds are sick. And so I started, uh, hand making mirrored wood hold sets, uh, in at the, we lived on a, uh, farm at the time in Maryland, uh, and so I had like a shop and stuff like access to just hand tools and, and stuff and, uh, handmade mirrored wooden sets to integrate into those walls. And when my, she was my girlfriend at the time. Now she's my wife. Uh, when we moved out here in 2013 to help open the golden gym, I was like, okay, well, obviously like we've got these big hydraulic system walls. Like one of them is going to be this sick ass mirrored wall. And I got in touch with a company in, in Europe, uh, who made wooden holds and it wasn't beast maker. It was another company. And I was like, Hey, like, this is what I need. I was like, I, this isn't my money. Like I have $15,000 to spend on holds for this wall. Like I'll pay you. This is what I want. Like I, it's, it's what you make already, but I'm going to need a lot of it. And they were like, nope, <laughs> they wouldn't do it. It was too much. Hmm. Um, and, you know, having now done it, I'm like, oh, I, I get where they're, they were coming from, knowing how they were making them. I was like, that would have been a nightmare. Um, and so a lot of the impetus for tension was like, I still want what I want, <laughs> you know? I still want wood holds. I still want this mirrored thing. Like I want this to exist. So that's really where the TB1 came from and what kind of the point of, we started with campus rungs. We had to start with something. We had some hang boards that weren't very, very good right off the bat, but started making holds. And then 
over like, and we're selling them just to gyms who wanted to put them wherever, um, or home wall people, but all the while kind of developing what ended up being the, the, the TV one, which man, that thing is brutal. <laughs> it's tough, dude. Hey, you've climbed on one before. Yeah. 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 Um, and definitely like with the tools we had at the time, it was like what we could do. Yeah, A lot of yeah. off the shelf tools, basic woodworking, you know, there you could theoretically copy them. And some people like have, like have, have just kind of made their approximations and built a tension board. And I think that's really cool. Mm. Um, well, that's cool. Uh, but with the TB2 and, and actually like, I don't know, people were like, well, how long did it take you to make the TB2? And I was like, well, what year is it? Like I started working on this in 2015, really. Wow. Um, like as a concept and then in developing the TB1, like we sort of got pushed to market with it um, for a number of reasons. One of which was like, well, at some point we have to start selling these mm-hmm. and charging money and whatever. Um, and so really never stopped working on what became like the TB2 mm. um, as far, like from a machining standpoint, a, a manufacturing standpoint, a whole design standpoint, a layout standpoint, a lighting standpoint, like it just never stopped. Um, and then, you know, eventually got to a point with the business where, you know, the TB1 just was outdated and uh, we had arrived at a place with that sort of ongoing development um, where like that we did it. <laughs> like mm-hmm. the, this is it. This mm-hmm. is this is what we've always wanted a board to be. And we've learned a lot in the process of like having this business. And I've been cli- like, we're all older people. We've all learned all sorts of things and and we're able to bring a lot of, new experience and context and expertise to the table. And then that's the the TB2. And we've worked on, you know, different kinds of hangboards along the way. The flashboard was a really early thing. Um, that actually existed because uh, I had started trying top notch in the park and and I was like, how do I fucking warm up for top notch? dude? <laughs> like yeah. I'm driving an hour and a half and then hiking an hour and like I get up here and there's top notch and there's nothing. <laughs> no warm up to warm up yeah, on. Yeah. Um, and, and the stuff you could warm up on, I'm like, well, it's, uh, it's the park. Like I'm going to bleed if I climb on anything else. So I was like, well, I need a portable hangboard so that I can warm up and then, and then just start pulling on to, something like top notch, like really aggressive right off the ground. Not a lot you can warm up to Mm -hmm. on a boulder like that. Um, And so experimented with different designs and we're like, these things suck. They tip all the time. Like what the hell is going on? Made what was a flashboard, but only had one hole where the cord went through. And we're like, how do we keep this from sliding? And I was like driving home from uh, Lincoln one day and I just popped into my head. I was like, oh shit, two holes, <laughs> wrap the cord around. It's a cylinder. You'll be able to adjust. Like it just clicked. Mm. Um, and now like that, like two holes adjustment thing is like everyone's doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like one of the first things where I was like, sweet. Like we made a legitimately cool product. Like this is a level up from anything anyone can get at the moment. And 
we still make that thing. It's gone through a few revisions, but it's effectively like the same one. And I don't know. I still think obviously that it's the best, but <laughs> <laughs> it's sick. It's super sick. Yeah. I love all that, man. I, um, yeah, I, I thought it was so cool to hear about a lot of the thought that went behind the TB2 because I can see like all the evolution and iterations across all your products. Like clearly you guys um, take feedback, you use these things yourselves, you tweak them, you make them better over time. I remember when the TB1 came out, I was like, holy shit, someone made a symmetrical moonboard that actually like uses all the set screw holes, you know? I was mm -hmm. like, brilliant. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. like feet, you know? Yeah. And I, I remember thinking like, this is, this is like, someone solved all those problems. And then I climbed on it and I did like it, but it was also like, oof, it's aggressive. It hurts. Like some mm -hmm. of the holes are uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Not a fan of like the slippery ball feet. They are good like tension training for rock climbing, but didn't totally love it. Um, I've climbed on it, you know, climbed on the moon board, climbed on the kilter board. That's super fun. The grasshopper board, loved that board. Felt like that really pushed things forward in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. The TB2 came out and I was like, this isn't, is this even the same company? Like this is like <laughs> such, it's such a quantum leap from yeah. the TB1. And hanging out in your shop and talking to you about it and seeing the beast, I was like, and for people listening, the beast is like this massive spray wall that you guys have at the tension center. It's like 16 feet wide and it's like 18 feet of climbing and it's covered in holds. And I was like, oh, I see what you've done. You've spent the last 10 years sessioning on this spray wall and taken all the best parts of it and put it into the tension too. And it comes across, like it feels like a super sick, maybe the sickest spray wall that I've climbed on but it also has lights and there's an app and there's thousands of yeah. problems. And I'm like, that is fucking cool. Yeah. That's really, really remarkably well done. But yeah, it was so interesting to hear that um, you've been working on it. It was like in the back of your mind, even while you were developing the first tension board and it just took that long. Yeah. And that, it, and I was hoping you felt this way. I was wondering if like, if it kind of feels like a magnum opus, you know? And I remember you saying, I don't know how exactly you worded it, but you're like, I'm not interested. Like, this is it. We we put in all the time and all the thought and made this incredibly cool thing. And this is it. I'm not interested in like reiterating and making it 5% better, you know? Yeah. I'd rather just work on something completely different. So maybe you will like put out an even sicker thing in like another 10 years that's totally different that we can't even conceive of yet. But does this feel, does the tension board too feel like kind of a magnum opus for you? Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways. And I think I misspoke on like a bunch of dates earlier on. I said something about 2015, but it was, I think it was like probably pre 2010. So like maybe 2006 or so when I started setting the like mirrored adjustable stuff. Okay. Um, and yeah, like I, it's taken since then. I feel like that, like the complete circle <laughs> effectively, like it, and it does, I, I, there's almost nothing that I would change on the TB2, which is, you know, for people who know me, that's a rare uh, <laughs> feeling for me to have. That's cool. Um, and it really, 
it's gonna it, i don't talk about it a lot like this because it's it's kind of it's kind of dumb and it's it's more of a personal thing but like it it represents a lot to me in a lot of different ways um both about like myself about the business of tension and also about climbing and like what climbing like communicating something to in this case everybody who climbs on it like something about what climbing means to me mm. that is embodied in that wall like those holds what they look like where they're positioned like all of that um and I think it's, it's really, yeah, man, it's just been, it's, it, it's sick, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and everybody, like everybody at Tension brought their best to it and it shows. And I'm just like, I, I feel like I've just been like, like that thing came out and I, I'm I'm only just now starting to like like feel a different kind of spark about some other things. Mm. Like I it it dominated everything for so long, and and to like and in a lot of instances felt like we wouldn't actually be able to do it. Like wouldn't actually be able to pull it off um, as a product or even exist as a company. Um, and then it like came out and we were like, are people going to fucking like this? Like, I really hope they do. Cause we put everything into it. Mm. Um, was and, it a big risk? Uh, yeah. Company? Every, yeah. Like it was everything. It was everything. All the chips in. Yeah. Yeah. Like if it, if, if people didn't like it and it didn't work, like, you know, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about <laughs> tension. <laughs> uh, wow. and so yeah, I'm really glad <laughs> people like it. Well, it was also so cool to hear. I mean, I, I think you did such a good job with the execution of the board um, for all the reasons I spoke about earlier. I mean, it is, yeah, it it's it's just fucking sick. It's I was like, oh my God, someone finally made like my dream, the dream <laughs> spray wall board yeah. that's like got the lights and all the things. Yeah. Um, but then to also hear that, you problem solved all of the manufacturing aches and pains. I'm sure there's still pain points, but like I was shocked to hear that the new tension board two wood holds are easier for you to make than the tension board one wood holds. Yeah. Like that's so counterintuitive. Yeah. And it speaks to like um, just your thoughtfulness and preparation, like in attention to detail, because that's something that a lot of people miss. Like there's a lot of great ideas out there. But if you can't execute on it and you can't repeat it and you can't afford to make it, then mm -hmm. you've got nothing. Exactly. Yeah. And and what I what's interesting is or, or what seemed obvious and intuitive to to me at the time and what I'm have only recently come to understand is maybe not always how these things get designed. Is the design process started with the material like fundamentally wood and polyurethane and okay. So wood, like where do you get wood? Well, it comes from a lumber mill. You can specify like the, the dimensions to an extent and then it comes in a board. Um, okay. So if we're ordering boards, 
Like we want to make sure that we don't stack up a bunch of material in the warehouse that can only be used for one thing. So we want to pick a constrain how many stock dimensions we want to inventory in a way that will allow us to make all the holds that we want to make. Mm-hmm. And then the shapes that we make in wood should accentuate what's good about wood and avoid what's bad about wood. And then when we do polyurethane, like, well, what's polyurethane good for? What's texture good for? And when we, when I designed the plastic holds, how, like I was trying to not do anything that I, I could do better in wood. Mm. And so the, the shapes are more complex, like where and where there isn't texture is very consequential. Like the, just by nature of the way that the wood holds get manufactured, there's certain things you can't do where that are just super easy in, in polyurethane. And so really trying to utilize each material in the best possible way, uh, paying attention to how the holds were going to get manufactured, how they were going to be held in the machine, how we were going to order wood, like uh, how many different holds we had. Like if if we're making, if we could make one hold that does the job of two holds, well, we're going to make one hold. Like we're not going to make two. And just poured over every, every single detail. I have bins and bins and bins of prototypes of just stuff that didn't make the cut and was really like, just tried to be ruthless mm-hmm. <laughs> about like what ended up on the wall. And there's a, there's a, every single hold has a name and every single thing about every single hold is, is that way for more than one reason. Mm. And you could hold a hold up and I could just tell you every piece about it. Mm. And like beyond that, like I knew where they would be on the wall while I was designing the shape. Is That's amazing. Is that just from having climbed on the beast so much and knowing like how you wanted to move through certain types of holds and knowing what yeah. kind of movement that opened yeah. up? And- I mean, just the, like it's, it really represents the totality of my experience climbing and like in the climbing industry as a coach, as a route setter, as a quote unquote athlete or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, I just, I, I just tried to make exa- like exactly what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when being able to come to the table with kind of the, what's more or less a final concept. And then instead of starting there and working your way down, like setting that as sort of a, a target in a way and being like, all right, cool, forget about that and going all the way back down to the bottom and being like, all right, we're a company that orders wood. (laughs) Like, uh, we have three axis CNC machines. Uh, like there's a place up the road that pours polyurethane. Like what do we have access to? And then, and what can we squeeze out of every part of the process all the while keeping this other thing in mind Mm. and knowing that kind of every even though it doesn't, just trying to squash every problem from the bottom up. Mm. Um, I had a I had a really pivotal experience uh, in the Black Canyon wh- the year that I graduated. I was calling with my friend Scott Crankola, 
uh, neither of us will ever forget this. <laughs> uh, Black Canyon, you park at the top, you wrap, hike down a gully. It's, it's, it can be pretty messy to go from the top of the canyon to the bottom and obviously messy to go from the bottom to the top. Anyway, we're climbing this, uh, this route and we, you know, I'd been going to school there for, uh, five years. Took me a minute. Uh, (laughs) and climbing in the black the whole time. Um, it was spring. The days were shorter. We went into it with a lot of hubris. We were like, we climb here all the time, man. This is our backyard. Like we're good. And decided on a short spring day to go down a gully we'd never gone down to climb, like a long route we'd never climbed before. Just like the epitome of hubris and youth. (laughs) And we got like a little bit lost going down the gully, had to do some sketchy things, like ended up making it, but like weren't worried at all, dude. We were like, "We're, we're fine. We're killing it. We're us. Like what could happen? Uh, got down to the bottom. Was like, oh, like I want to go down to the river. Like, spend a little extra time going down to uh, the river and it's checking it out because it's crazy. It's cool. Eventually, start climbing. Um, do pretty good. Take a little too long on some pitches. Get lost on a pitch. Classic Black Canyon stuff. And get really close to the top. The top, but it's getting fucking dark. And, and we're lost. And I start like going up to literally the last pitch before you can exit, like before the rim and it gets dark and I'm like, ah, fuck it. And and it's through a pegmatite band, which like is like all the white stripes in the black walls of the black Canyon is pegmatite more or less. And, and it's really face climby, um, so there's not like a crack to follow. It's very easy to get lost in the pegmatite and it's a pretty brittle rock and, and perfectly brittle in the way we're like, it only, it will break, but only if you fully commit. <laughs> so like at the Yikes. worst possible moment, right, right, right. Add on to that, that like, it's a trad area, it's a wilderness. You can't really bolt much of anything and there's no crack. So it's very hard to protect the pegmatite. It exists in these huge bands. Like that's, like the ruggedness of the the black in a nutshell is like these pegmatite pitches where you can't protect them. The route finding's hard and they're run out. And if you and, break something, yeah. you're falling in the worst possible way for however the fuck long, you know, like it's scary and it's real. Yeah. And so like it gets dark. Um, it's this last pegmatite pitch. I like go for my headlamp, turn it on. It fucking dies. Mm. Like I just, we were unprepared. And we get benighted, a pitch from the rim. Like there's no bailing. Like you, the, it's 2,000 feet down and, and 80 feet up. Like the only way is up and we're lost and it's dark. And I'm not about to climb this pitch in the dark with no headlamp. Like the only thing that would make this situation worse is if I break my legs and bleed out on this ledge. Like the, all we could do is just stay there. And what there was, was a ledge smaller than this coffee table, 2000 fucking feet up. I'm in like an R1 fleece. It's like April. Uh, (laughs) like it's, I remember like looking at, uh, Scott and being like, how cold was it supposed to get tonight? And he was like, thirties. 
and I'm like, are we like, what are we, are we going to survive this? We're like, we'll find out. And, uh, we spent the night alternating one of us. So we'd, uh, at the belay, we'd like stand up and jump up and down to like get warm. And then we would alternate one person would put on, we had one wind layer um, and the rope. And so we like pulled a bunch of choss out of the wall and made this little alcove. <laughs> and one of us would sit on top of the rope in the alcove and the other person would put the wind layer on and cover the person in the alcove. So the person in the alcove mm. could stay a little warmer and rest. And the person on the outside just had to deal with the wind. And then we'd get up, jump up and down and then switch. And we did that all night. And an interesting thing about the night is it's, you, it's about as long as a day. <laughs> and when you're awake for the whole thing in that kind of condition, uh, you feel it like every fucking minute. And a storm started coming in and we were just watching it on the horizon. And we're like, if we get wet, we will die. Mm. Like we'll get hypothermia. Like it's 30 degrees. And like I'm in mountain khakis and R1 fleece, like this is how you die out here. <laughs> and uh, the storm broke and went around us both directions. Thankful for that. Um, anyway, we lived through the night, start to like thaw out in the morning. Um, a friend of mine who was a climbing ranger at the time wraps down and was like, hey, you guys need a rescue? And I was like, fucking 12 hours ago we did. We'll get out. <laughs> like we got ourselves into this mess. Like we'll thaw we'll do this last pitch. It's good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we just hobble our way out this last pitch, pull over the rim and it starts dumping snow. Mm. Anyway, moral of that story, like everything fucking matters. Like whether you know it at the time or not, if we didn't get lost going down that gully, like I would have finished that pitch before it got dark. Like it was a matter of minutes. Mm -hmm. If I didn't go down to the river, like if we didn't dilly-dally at a couple of the belays, if we hadn't got lost, if we had climbed the pitch faster, like anything, any one of those little things that for hubris or ignorance or whatever reason we didn't do, we wouldn't, that wouldn't have happened to us. And we couldn't have known it in that moment. Mm -hmm. And that's something that has stuck with me ever since. Mm. And I feel like that's like, a crazy thing to like be embodied in something as stupid as an LED board, but like that's a part of why it's as good as it is. Mm -hmm. Because from the very beginning, like whether it was inconsequential or not, whatever we could do to like squash bugs, fix problems, like dial it from like the very bottom to the very top, like we just took the time to do. Mm. Because who knows like what those effects would have been downstream. Yeah. Um, and just tried to take everything seriously. Um, and, you know, that sounds like a cool story and it's a cool board, but um, that kind of endeavor can also go sideways really easily. Like it put me in, in bad psychological places a lot of times. Um, it was, you know, like with all things, like you get obsessed with something and like that's not always good. In hindsight, it worked out, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> anyway, Man, there you go. What a, what a riveting story to make a really excellent point. Um, 
I love that, man. I love it. And I don't know what relevance that has to everyone listening. I mean, I'm sure there's someone out there who's like planning to or excited to build something or has ideas or is already working on something and maybe that will change their trajectory. But I just know that for me, I really connect with what you're saying and it it like matches my deep inner philosophy. And I think I learned it in part through some great mentors, but also just from seeing it done so wrong. Like I've worked for multiple companies, one of them a climbing company, one of them uh, nothing to do with climbing, but the thing they had in common is they just kept fucking putting band-aids on things that should have been addressed a long, long time ago. And it's really hard once you're in the mix of like manufacturing and making shit mm-hmm. to go back to the 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 beginning and like fix the root cause of stuff. You just end up like putting out fires all the time. And um it's so different from what you do, but for the podcast, there's I, I did the same thing. I put an incredible amount of thought and time into planning and and like making sure things were set up correctly now because I knew they would probably become overwhelming later. Like one great example for anyone that does anything in digital, you know, art or um, content creation or whatever, file structure and organization, how you name shit. Like (laughs) I thought about that so much. And now that I have, you know, 190 episodes and like 50 something follow-ups and like a shit shit ton of content, if I ever need to go back and find something, it's dead easy because I started doing that from the beginning. But if I had waited until, you know, a year ago, it probably would be such a pain that I just wouldn't even be able to go back and fix it all. Like little, yeah, it's those yeah, little totally. things like that, that um, you, you, you take your time building a really solid foundation and that opens up like so much. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So much yeah. later on. Yeah. I love that. That's awesome. Well, man, I've got some, um, I've got some patron questions for you. I think we're going to dive into those, but I think we should wrap up um, this main episode. We're going to have to do this again, dude. I have, I kind of figured this would happen with you. I have like a whole (laughs) outline. I've got two pages of notes and um, we did touch on quite a bit of it just in the flow, but we just, we just flowed and there's a lot of stuff we didn't even touch and um, we'll have to come back and, and talk more about it so cool. but yeah really I appreciate, appreciate it. it yeah it's yeah. been an awesome conversation thanks for having me you bet bye everybody hey friends before you go just wanted to let you know that Will and I went on to talk for 30 more minutes and that extra segment is available right now for patrons who support the show for $5 per month or more it was great. 30 more minutes, more goodness. If you love this episode and if you can't get enough of the nugget that is available right now for patrons who support the show. And there is a seven day free trial for Patreon. So you can literally go over there right now at patreon.com slash the nugget climbing sign up for free. Just takes a few minutes to sign up and you can listen to that extra right now. It was great. There's going to be a lot more of these coming. I'm doing this with most of my episodes now and we'll continue this format into the future. So you can expect a lot of great content coming your way on Patreon. You'll get ad-free episodes. You'll get videos if you want to watch uncut interviews and you can listen to the patron version of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most of the places that you get your podcasts. 
So yeah, check it out. Patreon.com slash The Nugget Climbing. Thank you again to our sponsors for this episode. You can find their links and discount codes at thenuggetclimbing.com. Thanks again to all of you for tuning into the show and for your ongoing support. I hope your climbing is going well this fall season. I hope you have an amazing week and we will see you next time. Like we do it, like we do it, like we do it, like we do it, cause no one can